0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome, welcome to the Silver and Gold Substitutes. Coming to the ring, from parts unknown, with a combined weight of less than doctors on alone, Ghetto Tim, Swendy, Wendy, and a moron from Down Under. Silver and gold substitute, daddy. this is not Piccolo, so I don't really know why I'm talking like this. Um, hello, out there. This is uh, a silver and gold bonus ep- episode. We're doing this one in substitute of uh, Loaf and Zom. They're away because Zom is getting married to Sylvester Stallone's mother, and Loaf is the best man, so we stepped into the breach at the last minute. Uh, my name is Morris, and across the um expanse of the planet. I have uh Mr. Ghetto Tim Merrill over in Salt.
1: Hey hey I got a little little tribute there to Doctor Zom, you know? Well oh, I'm looking forward to hearing that and I think I'm gonna get drunk. I think it's today yeah <laughs> Because love and Doctor Zom have gone on away yeah. But Zom's got Jackie to ride, (laughs) Zom's got Jackie to ride, Zom's Zom's got got Jackie to
0: ride, but he don't care. Oh, that is awesome. Oh, hang on.
1: I'm so
2: bummed, I I don't keep the tambourine with me.
0: Oh, good lord. Oh, well, I, I suppose at this stage, we should also interview the other member of this, uh, uh, I, I'd like to say trashy trio, but you'd probably sue us for copyright. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Ms- we're far more than the trio. One Wendy of the three. Freeman. What the, oh, the fab trio. Yes, that works.
2: Yes, yeah, we're totally with the fab trio. Yes. Hey, friends, how's it going? Hey, Wendy. Oh, this has
0: been a long time in the office. So. Um, it's 5 of-
2: a.m. here. I'm just laying in bed with you. Oh.
0: So, we- <laughs> 5 a.m. So um, basically, yeah. So 5 a.m. your time at the moment, Wendy. It's uh, yes. 8 p.m. or 7 p.m. where you are, Tim.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, eight o'clock right now. And it's 10 p.m.
0: here. Well, we're, but we're all at least on the same day of the week. It's it's a Sunday.
3: Yes. And, um,
0: we're recording. Uh, so what we've decided to do is do a little. because um, well, I always sort of make the shows thematically linked. So. Uh, the easy one would be to say uh, music movie theme, but even more uh, music uh, movie. Uh, hang on, I'll get get this right. Music movies where the drummer is the hero. Would yes. that work? I'd say that works. <laughs> there you go. So we're going to do a little bit of uh, help from 1965, starring a little group you might have heard of called the Beatles. And then we're going to be doing some talking about film from 1996, I think it was. That thing you do, directed by one Mr. Tom Hanks. I don't. Is this
1: the first time a Tom Hanks film has been on Silver
0: and Gold? I think it is.
1: (laughs) I think down in down in Jamaica it was known as That Thing You Do, man. (laughs) And uh, these
0: are both. I don't know. I mean, they were were both G-rated films over here, so. We're going to have to silver and gold them up.
2: Oh, um, I, I think I have no problem with that. Uh,
0: <sighs> I don't, it, it'll be interesting. We just
2: burp and fart a lot.
0: Yep, yep, yep. I'm, I'm sure they did a lot of that offset. <clears throat> yeah. We'll just have to um, you know, emulate that. That'll be great. So before we get into talking about the films, um, just to sort of go in with the silver and gold thing, let's talk about what we've been watching and what we've been listening. So um,
1: who wants to go first? Go
3: ahead, Wen. All right.
2: Well, just uh, last night, I watched a film from Tim's part of the world. I watched uh, I watched um, New World from Korea. Mm. And uh, that was, yeah, that was that was a pretty great movie. And it's also brought on the fact that now I just want to insult everyone by calling them Yanbian hobos. Yeah. What does that mean? What is a Yanbian? No. Tim, it's... Do you know what's...
1: It's it's just the it's just the term. in mean, lower lower class here. There's a lot of immigrants. There's a lot of you know Koreans that live in China, and they come mm-hmm. over here and try to get a get make a go of it. And uh, yeah, there's all there's a lot of the uh, derogatory statements over here. They're they're hilarious. You know, I mean, like the worst the worst thing you could call somebody over here is the son of a dog. You know, I mean, <laughs> seriously, like you you'd get killed for that. You know. Your mother is a dog. You're the son of a dog. It's like, there's all kinds of crazy, uh, yeah.
2: So I saw that. And also while I was on Netflix Instance, I watched uh, the Ray Harryhausen documentary. Moritz, you saw that as well.
0: Yeah, well, I I bought that. I've got that as a present for Max, and he's watched it and has drooled over it. But I don't know. I think I might have been editing the last Love That Album podcast. I didn't sit down to watch it with him, but I will definitely be doing that sometime over the next week, I think
2: yeah it's really inspiring. It's just incredible seeing the evolution of effects that, that he really ushered in. it was It's pretty tremendous
1: to watch. It's simply worth seeing mm-hmm. i have a I have a personal theory, just a little belief that I think Ray Harryhausen must have smoked pot. oh yes <laughs> no, because because you must Please. he must have been incredibly stoned to be able to have the patience to sit down and do what he did. Like you know, he must he must have had to, he must have had some wicked weed or something to sit down there and like move those figures inch by inch by inch by inch because there's no other way except being stoned that you could actually sit down and do so. You know, it's like sitting down to a jigsaw puzzle. The only way you're going to do that is if you're baked. It's just like
2: don't, don't ruin my impression of Harryhausen. No, I imagine, I'm not...
1: I imagine that it's not so much that he was
0: stoned while doing it. But stoned while watching the result of it or he was probably sitting there and saying, "Fuck! Look at the little dinosaur! It moved! Fuck! <laughs> <laughs> I, I
1: did that!" Oh. No, it's just, I don't know. I, it's just—it's just something that I mean. It just goes to show. I'm not, I'm not taking anything away from people in, you know, in the CGI field. But I mean, today no one can really comprehend the amount of time and effort that it took, the meticulousness. Of, of, of being able to set everything up like he did.
0: Well, maybe Nick and Park that,
1: does. Yeah, sure, but I mean, not. But the thing is, with him and Nick Park, I mean, it wasn't just one film that they put out. I mean, they put out, you know, a volume, right? And and that's and that's just it. I mean, like you know, in America, there was a guy named Ray uh, Art Clokey who did Gumby. Oh, right. Yeah. And the same thing, you know, I mean, or uh, what was his name there? Uh, Jerry uh, Anderson. Right.
2: Or, of course, I mean, you know, the guys that did um, uh, Rink and Bass.
1: Right. And absolutely. Right. And I think they all had to be stoned because there's no other way <laughs> you can sit down, sit down and just do that. I mean, that that's just like, you know, that's insane. Jerry Anderson didn't do one movie. He did an entire fucking series of shit. And I mean, like, when you think you think about that—that the, the guy actually did that for a living—I mean, like, you got to be out of your mind, you know?
2: I prefer to believe these men are very diligent and and perhaps OCD. I'd rather imagine that than the yeah. I, I, I know, but I mean, it's just like
1: to me, <laughs> that's like sitting sitting on a beach and getting paid to count grains of sand. You know what I mean? It's just like whoa. Anyway, sorry, Win. Go ahead.
2: You just ruined my childhood. Thank you. You're <laughs> Also on the Doc docket, I've been reading um, the latest James Bond novel, because they still come out with James Bond novels. Mm. And I watched uh, that documentary, Everything or Nothing, that's on Netflix Instant, about the history of James Bond, and I liked that a lot. Right. And then uh, also, too, uh, so... Uh, As far away from help and that thing you do as you can get, I watched a couple of uh, rape revenge films.
3: Nice,
0: (laughs) something for the uh, something for the trashy trio, no doubt, or or just watching White Rose Campus got you in the mood.
2: (laughs) Well, nothing like a rape buzz that gets me in the mood to watch these things. So I was looking for potentials, trashy trio potentials. So I watched one called The Taking of Christina that was really awful. (laughs)
1: absolutely horrendous high like hard-
2: <laughs> it was just
1: straight up like you mean we're not
2: going to see a Criterion come out it was just straight up like hardcore sex and then somebody gets shot at the end like that was it oh. <laughs> so I hate to spoil for you the ending of taking Christina but it was, it was pretty bad and then I watched uh, another one I think it was called Night Train Murders yeah Night Train
1: Murders is pretty uh, yeah. well known yeah
2: all right, okay, that's one of the, the girls on the on the train on the way to the right. ski trip. Right. And then they get raped and killed there.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's, and
2: it's funny because, like, it's also under, like, the subtitle of, uh, you know, I Spit on Your Grave 2 right, and stuff right. like that. Yeah. And it makes me wonder, like, was I Spit on Your Grave such a hugely popular film that it spawned all of these, all sure. these, like, knockoffs?
1: Sure, sure. In in Europe, it did. Yeah. Huh. Yeah.
2: That just, I, I'm just, I would like to read some sort of, like, history of, of why all these rape revenge films came out at that time. Like, what was the zeitgeist? Right.
1: You know, I was going to say, like, if there's any film I could recommend to the Trashy Trio just off the top of my head in that kind of uh, run, there's a film called Red to Kill that you have to see. Mm-hmm. hmm Red to Kill. I'll know all about Red to Kill. I'm just telling you, you guys got to cover that one. That's a good one. <laughs>
2: Awesome. So yeah, so that was my trashy viewing. And, and then I and then I <laughs> I do a lot of trashy everything. And then I went to the movie theaters. Mm-hmm. I went to the theaters and uh I saw Thor 2. Mm. And it was all right. It was it was better than the first one, but it was no Captain America, so, you know, there's that.
1: I don't partake <laughs> in Marvel. I can't. <laughs> No, it's just the thing with Jack Kirby, man. I love Kirby too much and you know, until they start giving his family some shackles, I can't yeah. I, I can't do it. I didn't nah. yeah. I, I know it sounds kinda geeky, but that's just me. I just I just feel like it just rubs me the wrong way knowing that the guy created so much and he kinda got shafted and that just kinda bugs me. Anyway.
2: Yeah, so I saw that and uh and I saw Gravity in IMAX three D. what do you think of Gravity? It was stunning. I mean yeah. it was just yeah, like it was like one of those things. It was like um, like whenever I go see, uh, you know, like a Terrence Malick film, I just, I just want to be immersed, you right. know. I just want right. like stop thinking. I just want to be immersed. And uh, I, at any time, I, you know, in every movie Sandra Bullock is in, I'm rooting for her to die. Mm-hmm. So this is the first movie I saw, in which I was not actively rooting for her demise. So mm-hmm. that was amazing. I think that's a good film when it can change my mind like that.
1: I've, yeah, it I've was never funny.
2: seen
0: a, I've never seen a film that I wanted to watch in 3D. The whole thing does nothing for me, but this is the oh, first no, this I, is I, the first I, film that I watched that I thought, fuck, why am I at the 2D version of this? I
1: mean, right, right,
0: that yeah, it right. was really amazing.
3: So
1: I'm not a generally uh, claustrophobic or have any type of phobia like that, but man, when she's hyperventilating out there and she's floating in the middle of nowhere and it's just like, Gee! it just I don't know, it just kind of got me. The way the visuals yeah. were and everything, it just really kind of left you kind of like choking or whatever. I don't know. But I just wanted to say one thing that I always thought was kind of funny. When she was floating there in that little space station, no spoiler or anything, her hair was perfect. <laughs> there, there was nothing like you didn't see her hair floating up in zero G's, you know? Like, you know, she would, like, you, you would see her hair just like stringy, like floating everywhere. And it, it was just perfect. It just didn't make you know. Isn't there, like, like, a
0: long list of scientific uh, fluff-ups with that film? And that's probably, I think yeah. that's one of them.
1: It could be, but there was a, or, or else, you know, when George Clooney opens the door. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, why should it just go? But, hey, that's explained by, you know, there's a spoiler that explains yeah, why that yeah, might be. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, I was, I was sure. watching that
0: thinking, oh, you've got to be joking. And then five minutes later, oh, all right, okay, fine, yeah, I can live with right. it.
2: Yeah, I just prefer to, you know, just roll with the storytelling of it. I'll forget, you know, the same way in every movie, in every sci-fi movie, in every, you know, you've got to let go of your attachment to science. At a Sure. Right <laughs> so, yeah, so
1: that was what I saw this week. Okay. Mm. Tim? Oh, okay. Well, I guess I started off with... Uh, a western that I haven't seen in ages, and I went back to, and I just got the Blu-ray. Uh, Mill Creek actually put out the Blu-ray. It's a uh, Kioma. It's a oh, uh, nice old Franklin Nero western, but I love this film. But the soundtrack drives me up the fucking wall. No, <laughs> well, because there's this woman singing in the soundtrack, and, and but when she's singing, she's almost narrating the story. And it's like, you know, I just I like that. But he, she's going he's going back to his father and she's like, Kiyoma, don't go back to your father, Kiyoma. How do you feel being alone as a child, Kioma? You know? And then he starts and then Nero starts singing, Father, I'm coming home. You know, it's like, for fuck's sakes, man. It's like, God, you know, this uh you know, it's like They're they're trying to do a metaphysical kind of uh, thing like like Jodorowsky did with El Topo, but it's like, oh, my God. Like, I I like the film, but it's like, if there was a way to just mute that soundtrack, man, I'd be all for it, you know? It just drives me up the wall. It's almost like Yoko Ono singing background on a Western, you know? It's just like, (laughs) don't cry, little Ah, kiddo! Exterminate! 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 You know, it's like, God. Anyway, um, then I watched Deranged. It's, uh this is a little loosely based tale about uh, Mr. Eddie Gein, Robert's Blossom from 1974. This is probably the, clo- the closest you're going to get to the Eddie Gein tale. It really nails it. Yeah, And it was actually shot up in Ontario, my neck of the woods, with Stompin' Tom Connors on the soundtrack, actually. It's mm-hmm. pretty amazing. The effects on it are pretty gnarly. Tom Savini, one of the first films he did. Uh, then I watched old classic, you know. Those those films you put on whenever you're doing the dishes, or you're cleaning the house, or just, you know, when you're in a bad mood, it's that kind of, the bomb. Mm. Cheech and Chong's up in smoke.
0: Ah, uh, very
3: good.
1: Yeah. Now, here's the funny thing is, like, I got a friend of mine. He's younger. But I put this on, and we were watching it. <laughs> and he says to me, he goes, Man, this isn't funny. I don't get it. Says,
2: it's not I, funny. I don't get it.
1: And I, but but he says, but here's the thing. I says, so what do you think is funny? And he says, Dumb and Dumber. <laughs> and I said, Dude, I said, if it wasn't for Cheech and Chong, there wouldn't have been no fucking Dumb and Dumber. Like I mean, this is Dumb and Dumber in the <laughs> '70s. Yeah, you know? like, you know, like this is it, you know. And you know, but but no, I mean Cheech and Chong. Like I mean they as much as a lot of people just want to dismiss it as stoner humor it really it was almost like an extension of Abbott and Costello and Lewis and Martin and all that stuff I mean only it was for the stoner set sure but it was that duo comedy you know the straight guy and then the goofy guy man and you know Tommy Chong was always the straight guy and Cheech was always the goofy guy you know and but I mean I love Cheech and Chong man it's just hilarious you know I've, I've and a there's, guy, much...
0: there's a guy who I work with his name is David and I just take great joy whenever someone comes around asking where he is and I get to say Dave's not here
1: right yeah, yeah, yeah. that's great uh, then I watched the uh, the Evil Dead remake which uh, did you see that Wendy
2: you know, I liked the setup for that. I'm not gonna lie. I think that like that was a good idea for for an update. I mean, I think a lot of it was like too much gore for shock's sake or whatever. Right. But I liked the fact that it was about a brother sister dynamic. Uh-huh. I like that a lot, and I liked the fact that like they're trying to hold it there for an intervention. You know, I I I felt it was a good premise.
1: Mm-hmm. But you know, but I'm not because you know the rest of it. <laughs> mo- most people I've talked to. I've said, so what do you think about it? And they say, oh, well, the last 20 minutes, man, was really fucking wicked. I'm like, yeah, but it doesn't make a movie. Right, no. And, you know, what I mean, and I found it, you know, yeah, it was overly cruel for, for the, uh, the younger, hipper set, you know what I mean? And, I mean, granted, when you go back and look at the original Evil Dead, I mean, yeah, you know, there's a pencil in the foot and there's eye gougings and it's pretty nasty, too. But I I found that the newer one was just overly ramped up, just for the sake of being overly ramped up, you know.
2: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But I still like the I still like the concept of what got them to the cabin. Uh-huh,
1: uh-huh. And, uh huh. Uh huh. And the last thing I watched was the Muscle Shoals documentary.
2: Oh, awesome! How was that?
1: That's fantastic. It's it's amazing. I mean, you know, when you realize it, it, it's so it's so amazing when you realize how much came out of a small little area or even just two studios. It's, it's just unbelievable how much like you, and like you, you you just think, okay, wait a minute, that's everything, right? Oh no, there's more. And then, Oh yeah, I forgot about that. Holy shit. There was Paul Simon and there was, you know, Seeger and there was this and Skinner and there, you know, Rita Franklin and holy shit. Like it just goes on and on and on and on and on. And then it's like, you know, you got these guys, the swampers, who are the dude, the studio dudes there, and they wind up becoming almost like you know. As much as people laugh at uh, you know, Paul Schaefer and Letterman's house band, they've played with everybody,
3: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: And, and you know, and, and it's just like you know, and they're so modest about it too. These guys in the documentary were like, "Yeah, man, yeah, we we played with you know Wilson Pickett, yeah, we we played with Otis, you know, we played with these guys, yeah, 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 yeah sure, sure, you know." To them it wasn't anything special. It was just them jamming with people they like to jam with, you know? So it's the only the only qualm I have with the with the documentary is that, you know, everything was perfect up until the point where they had to get that nimble fuck that Irish prick with his sunglasses, wearing sunglasses twenty-four-seven, you know, and it's just, oh, we've we heard about muscle shows, yeah, man, in Dublin and we had to get over here, and you too really had to get in there and get into the Mississippi mud. And it's like, fuck off, you wanker. Oh, man. <laughs> I I can't stand Boner. I just can't, man. It's just like, you know, every time he came on, and he only came on a couple of times, but it, I just couldn't. Uh, I'm just like, I just fast-forwarded it. Get through him. You know, get into the meat and potatoes. But, I mean, you know, you don't need that guy for authenticity, you know. I mean, no
0: they always seem to bring up the um, the more contemporary artists in, in a lot of these music docos to seemingly add that authenticity. Oh, yeah, this is what they did to my life. And, wow, they're absolutely fantastic and they're completely integral to my growing up. And, yeah, I completely agree it's not needed.
3: Right. But, but that is mean, one film I what
1: what want to see.
2: What was that one where they brought all the guitars together and it was like Jack White and Jimmy Page? Uh, this and will be gonna loud.
1: This yeah. is going to get loud, yeah. This is loud.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I just wanted to punch Jack White throughout most <laughs> <laughs> And I realized he was just going to be like the young, hip guy or whatever, but he just got on my nerves like so
1: much. Yeah, that's like Boner. That's like Boner, man. I can't stand that guy. It's yeah. just, oh.
0: You and me, right. Yeah, uh, no, that's, that's one I definitely want to see. I, as I think I, I said to you a few weeks ago, Tim, that was showing um, about three, four months ago at the uh, Melbourne Film Festival. Uh, yeah, and um, yeah, had a had a mate who called me up like about with well, an hour to go and said, "Hey, I've got a spare ticket. You want to come?" And it was just, yeah, couldn't make it. But, it's um... funny
1: because Jim Jimmy Cliff is on the documentary too, and he's talking about something that I kind of you, you, you've heard these new age hippie people talk about ley lines and like energy energy points on the planet. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, like for example, in Arizona, there's a place called Sedona, and some people believe that Sedona is one of these these points, right, you know, where there's energy lines that run, run across the planet. Well, Jimmy Cliff's saying, you know, there's something in Muscle Shoals in that place that gets a certain sound or gives people a certain ambience, and people are able to do magical things there, and I mean, you know, believe it if you will, but you know, he's not the only one that has said that. I mean, Steve. And you didn't
2: chalk that up to the fact that the guy's a fucking stoner?
1: No, because, I mean, like, there's Stevie Winwood, and there's all kinds of people that, you know, I mean, like, you know, there was, like, Rita Franklin said the same thing, you know. Like, I mean, you know, there's all kinds of people that went there and just said that, I don't know if it was the rural location or whatever it was, but, you know, or um, what's his name? I'm trying to think, of, oh, shit, no. Recording engineer uh, Rick uh, shit, but anyway, no. I mean, it, it's just they—they they all agree that there's something going on there that was able that was able to kind of produce that muscle show of sound, you know. Mm. So you know, above and beyond, like you know, everyone said like they, if they recorded it anywhere else, they wouldn't have been able to, to do what they did there. So right. say what you will.
0: How did it? How did it compare to that documentary that came out? Maybe about i know three four years ago called uh respect respect yourself the history of stacks Mm. was that that comparable to that
1: well they talk a little bit about stacks in here and they talk about you know like a lot of the the artists and the segregation and and they get into some of it but um i don't know i mean it, it it's it's pretty deep you know it's pretty deep
0: Well, yep, hopefully that'll uh, be made available locally, unlike uh, in the States, we don't really have uh, proper streaming service like Netflix. I mean, there's something, but it's pretty piss-weak, so hard to get hold of those sorts of films, but hopefully there'll be a way that I can track that one down. I'd really love to see it. Yeah. So so that's all you got? Yeah. All right, I'll quickly go into um, a few things that I watched over the last week. It's been a little bit sort of, uh, I wouldn't say die, but sort of haven't been watching... Whole lot, but I've got a few things here. Uh, so a couple of cinema experiences. I went to um, about a week and a bit ago to see a film called Cannon Fodder. Now this has been labelled as I think it's Israel's first ever zombie film, and it was it was a lot of fun. So you get um, uh, this uh, th- this guy. He's uh, like a security. Guy who's uh, I think he's being sent on one last mission. He he uh, he just wants he wants to get married and doesn't want to serve any more time. But he uh, he gets called on one last mission, gets uh, pitted together with about three other rookies and goes into uh, goes into Lebanon uh, to uh, to get hold of a Hezbollah operative who uh, they believe has been uh, instigating chemical chemical warfare. Uh, that they're going to drop on Israel, and it, they go there to find it. They they get attacked by zombies, and these are running zombies. So, um, anyway, what what goes on? It, it's a, it's just a lot of fun. I mean, some of the CGI, nah, I'm not that crazy about, but but just overall as a as a tale well told, um, yeah, I had a lot of fun with that. And if you do get to see this, keep watching over the closing credits because that's probably the uh, the funniest moment of the film. Uh, then I went to see a film called Putzel, which the only name that I knew out of this was um, uh, Susie... Oh, no, sorry, no, the name, but I forgot. Uh, uh, the, the woman who played as Susie Green in Curb Your Enthusiasm. Susie Essman.
1: Okay. Oh. And,
0: and like, normally I'm used to, a, a, in Curb Your Enthusiasm, calling Larry a four-eyed fuck and calling Jeff a, a fat fuck. And in this film, she's just as, you know really this a sweet lovely lady who 's been hard done upon by her husband she 's not the central character in the film but it's it 's a woody Allen-esque type of film um, but you know made for you know the 2000s i guess uh, and yeah there was a lot of there was a lot of fun uh putzel. and uh, a week well yeah sometime in the last week or so I got to watch um uh, a film which i 'm not sure if this won the best. Uh, the Best Picture Award was only nominated for the Best Picture Award in 1949. I'd be interested to know whether Zom has watched this. I bet Terry Frost has. Uh, there's a film called All the King's Men. And I watched this and, I don't know, it just brought The Sopranos to mind. I'm, I'm sure that David Simon has seen this at some stage. This is about um, a guy in a small town. I think he's just, at the beginning of the film, he starts off with the best of intentions. He's a farmer and he just wants to get like a, a secretary position on the local council. Uh, and but you know he he um he, he basically uh, sort of goes up the ranks uh, he loses out but then he he starts speaking a whole lot of things to you know to get the populist vote and the next thing we know he gets to be the governor of the state that he's in but of course it's a story about absolute power corrupting absolutely and i i think for the day for you know for 1949 it was you know, pretty full on fairly heavy going especially i think for a for a Hollywood film, quite quite cynical. There was no sugarcoating anywhere in this film. It was really really intelligent. Uh, some great dialogue, and yeah, one I'd recommend highly. All the chance men. That, that was who did that star? Uh, Broderick Crawford. Does the name ring a bell? Mm. There was there was, there was yeah. no one apart from John Derek. There was no one in in this film whose whose name I knew. But that might be oh, and Mercedes McCambridge. Um, right. But, um, yeah, no, a really great film directed by a guy called Robert Rosen.
1: That's yeah, Broderick Crawford was in a lot of noir films, too.
0: Oh, right. No, this yeah. is a, Yeah, no, it, it was a great, great film. Really enjoyed that. So um, that's pretty much what I've um, watched over the last week or so. Uh, all right, so at this point, maybe we should um, take a break and then come back and talk about uh, the first of the two films that we're going to discuss. Any preferences? Okay, we'll just go in chronological nope. order then. <laughs> okay, we'll, <laughs> uh, we'll cover uh, Help from 1965. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Silver and Gold Substitutes with Tim, Wendy, and Morris. We'll be back very shortly.
1: GGTMC live for you fresh year. Big Willie and the Samurai are at your service. Breaking films down and turning them around. Giving recommendations that are always on point. Visit GGTMC.com for more information. The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. Bringing class to the trash since 1977. Boys, something perpetrating. Run, you're out of you
3: to keep the the Help, I need somebody. Help, not just anybody. Help, you know I need someone. Help. So much younger than today. I never needed, I never needed anybody's help in any way. Now, but now these days are gone. And I'm
2: not so self-assured. Now I find I've changed my mind.
3: I know.
0: And we're back from break. You're listening to The Silver and Gold Substitutes with Wendy, Tim, and Morris. And we're going to talk a little help for you from 1965, directed by one Richard Lester and starring four guys. You may have heard of John Lennon, Paul McCartney. Who else? Ringo Starr. Who have I left out? Oh, George the Harrison. The other guy. Yeah, the other guy. George
3: Harrison. <laughs> <laughs> and
0: a bunch of other people. Right. Uh, so, uh, let me. Should I bring up an IMDb summary, or, or do you guys have um, a summary there?
1: Let me. See. Yeah. Well, uh, it basically uh, it's summed up with one word. You know, Carrie. Carrie. <laughs> <Caddy! laughs> All right.
0: So, um, oh, hang on. I've got. I've got the. Um, I've got the uh, IMDb summary up here and it says Ringo finds himself the human sacrifice target of a cult and the band must try to protect him from it.
1: That's right you're after Ringo's stinky pinky (laughs) you know it's
2: (laughs) it was interesting to me because I'd read that the original instead of making this movie they had wanted to make like a western where all of them had fallen in love with like some rancher's daughter and they all had to like fight each other about it and I was so happy they did not go with a love angle in this movie. I was so happy. It was just like a straight up like goofy chase adventure, well, you they know.
1: Could have, they could have done it with the you know, they could have done it as a western, you know, where Ringo, you know, fell in love with a horse, you know, and then they could all say <laughs> you got to hide your love away. <laughs> oh dear. Or why don't we do it in the road? That was like, <laughs> That was still a few
0: years. That was still a few years. Yeah, that was still
1: a few years <laughs> ahead. Right. So um anyone wanna lead on this? Um uh, there's a couple of things I just wanted to say All that right. um this film was so influential to so many different things that it's not even funny. Mm-hmm. And first and foremost I wanna I wanna note that, you know, you can see the obvious references that uh another group of four gentlemen took that became a group known as the Monkeys, mm-hmm. and you can see how you know the Monkeys TV series and even you know their career and everything came came out of help. And right. everyone could say, "Well, they just aped the Beatles," but yeah, it's easy to say that. But I think aped even the more,
0: Beatles, I see what you did there.
1: Like, oh, <laughs> even even more so, um, even more so. I think that with this film, with the comedy aspects, um, they really on you know, the you know. They, this was the birth of the monkeys in this film. Also, um, I want to say that I think that the Beatles, with the comedy aspects, they wind up aping the Marx Brothers. Right, and the goons. Be- and the goons, right? Of course, and they, and that was one thing that I always thought was kind of missing in this film was Peter Sellers.
0: <laughs> yeah, he would have
2: been really.
1: Cool, no, serious. I, I really thought, because he had a relationship with John Lennon, I knew that, but I, I he thought... He could have
2: been one of the scientists.
1: Well, more, more. well, <laughs> I don't mean to get into, get into the review already, but I think uh, we'll get into it later. I'll mention Peter Sellers. I'm not going to say anything now, but um, no, I, I just think that, you know, this film, and also, you know, it, it's a strange bedfellow and a real nice pairing to uh, the Bond series as well. Because it was, um,
2: very, it was definitely very it definitely very evocative like uh, you know, Doctor Goldfoot and the bikini machine, yeah. you know, the yeah, that, that campy sort of bond parody thing sure, that sure. was going on at the
1: time. Absolutely, absolutely. I think it's amazing but I think- that I oh, saw go. On. Well, oh, go ahead, Morris.
0: No, I was, I was just going to say that it's amazing that we are still here in 2013 actually able to talk about this film because back in the day it was probably only seen as just another way to cash in on what was then Beatlemania and here we are talking about how influential it was, where it took its influences from, you know, with, with you know, Marx Brothers and the Goons and what it led to with, you know, the monkeys and, uh, intendedly or not, the modern day video clip, but, it, you know, right. at the time it was just... Like I don't know if it had any more, uh, if it was seen as having any more influence than, say, you know, a Cliff Richard film. You know, watching uh, the young ones, or the or Jonas Brothers, right?
2: You know, like is it like the modern equivalent of be like the Jonas Brothers show on Disney Channel or something? You know, <laughs> or but, High School Musical, like one of those yeah, I think things. Right. Today,
1: though, I think today is that you know they they benefit from from being kind of you know saturated through so many different mediums I mean like through the internet and through you know television and through cell phones and through everything whereas at the time the cinema was old, I mean sure um the Beatles must you know they've obviously did some product placement you know on television and radio but not as they were they were a pretty big commodity I mean you know I think the only way to really push their their um, their music and what they were doing was through film that was it and the
2: musical sequences in this are so diverse from each other and so stunning.
1: Yeah.
0: Right, right. We, we tend to sort of think that the, uh, the first great Beatles clips, or I normally, when I think about it, were um, uh, Strawberry Fields Forever and Penny Lane. And, you know, there were those sort of like... Well, I think dumb,
2: A Hard Day's Night.
0: Well, you know, hard, Well, I guess, yeah, With can't buy me love, but, but um, I, I think really the film clips in here... Uh, we're probably, in, in my mind anyway. So sort of like the birth of what came later, was, you know, partly because they're in color. But you know, see them frolicking around in the snow, and and you know, maybe I guess you know, uh, can't buy me love, where they're running around on the football field. Um, well, I also... was
2: thinking more like Hard Days Night, like the classic, like them running from all the fans. You know, that was such right. a, a you know such an influential. Yeah. Yep. Yep. But yeah, like my. Is it too soon to talk about, like, what was our favorite music clip? Should we hold no, this no, off?
0: No, go, no, go for it any way you like. <laughs> like
2: yeah, like, it, it, when they did You've Got to Hide Your Love Away. Uh, no, that wasn't it. I'm sorry. Which, wow, shit. Which one was it? But the one where they're in the studio, yeah. and it's all green lit.
0: You're, you're going to lose that and girl. And it's like... You're yeah, going to lose, yeah, that, girl. Gonna lose yes. that
2: girl, you're going to lose that was it. And, like, like everything is just so... The lighting is so perfect. And Ringo's smoking while yes. he's playing. Right, It's hilarious. It, it, like it's so funny now but like it looked so cool right oh,
1: the, 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 the photography in that they shot is... that, yeah i was going to say the way they shot that it really still holds up today and that's amazing
0: absolutely yeah right. it looks it looks beautiful on on david yeah. i didn't get the blu
1: ray yeah. but it looks i've got beautiful. the hd of it and it, almost, and it and it's weird because it's almost it's almost like a fish tank quality it's got this weird kind of you know Weird warped kind of like underwater like tinge to it. It's kinda neat. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I think that still looks really cool. Mm. I like um for myself when they're they're playing in the house, you got to hide your love away. Mm. When yeah. when uh I wanna say that uh that woman she, she she kinda looks like uh she almost looks like Glenn Gould in Drag. <laughs> uh, the, yeah,
0: oh, don't, uh, don't say that. I had a crush on her. I had a crush on Eleanor. Really? I, mind you, I think I had a crush on Elliot. Uh, uh, did you say Elliot Gould or Glenn Gould?
1: Glenn Gould, oh, man. Oh yeah, like, Glenn, no, Glenn Gould's
0: that, fine. Not Elliot Gould, but Glenn Gould.
1: No, she looks no like. And what we're we're uh, <laughs> Paul's giving Paul's giving her the eye. Yes. And He keeps winking <laughs> at her, and George is sitting oh, beside man. her, and George is like, "Yeah, look at me. You know, I'm the bass player. I mean, I'm the guitar player. Yeah, you know, <laughs> like you know, it's like." You know, Yeah, and he's just trying to. Anytime
2: Paul winks, anytime Paul winks, I
0: swoon. Still,
1: (laughs) (laughs) that's funny.
0: And you're saying Paul ditch Heather? She she was don't go for Heather in the future. She's bad news. She's bad news. Pick me, pick me. Right.
2: (laughs) I I only want I only want Paul for like a select like maybe number of years. I only want like a small time capsule of Paul. I don't want I don't want to. You know, even though when he got a beard, he wasn't been that bad there either. Right.
1: <laughs> well I mean, you I'll know take- after after he got through with the last one, you know, he didn't leave her with a leg to stand on, you know, but I mean
3: <laughs> Oh
1: <laughs> Oh nasty, nasty. Yeah. Like- but it's funny it's funny how the film opens and it and it's almost like is it just me or like did you expect to see Harrison Ford come out with a whip?
2: people won't get Kali Ma that was yeah right right, like, right
1: but it was expect, you know I was expecting them to rip the heart of that woman you know laying there and it's just like kali ma you know, like, it's just funny how it, it parallels and it makes you wonder i mean whether Spielberg had actually you know said hey i I like help i don't know what you said as the you know the the, the beginning of a plot for the 2nd Indiana Jones film like it just it's just weird i mean how <laughs> that that vibe it's just kind of funny yeah, but yeah. um well let's talk about
2: what were the rules of the sacrifice like you had to wear the ring for 24 days or for 24 hours
1: yeah 24 hours, hours. at yeah, pa- the end and of the day they t-
2: red.
0: Okay <laughs> yes, so, so yeah. like, let's let's basically go and explain we've gone and said that Ringo's got a ring but okay so Ringo has received this ring from a fan in the post he goes and puts it on and he can't right. get it off his finger this right. uh, this uh, cult Tribe, uh, they use this ring to have people who wish to be sacrificed up to up to their deity, uh, and and but they cannot be sacrificed unless they are wearing the ring. So it's obvious. It's a little bit sort of strange how at the beginning of the film where they're about to sacrifice this woman, how they don't notice before you know they actually lay her out on the slab that she's not wearing the ring until just you know at the last second. They they're obviously not good at their job. But basically, the film then sort of has. The members of this cult tribe uh, chasing down the Beatles to cut Ringo's finger off and get the ring, or to bring him back to sacrifice him, and right. and also coupled with that, there's a pair of um, wacky British scientists who idiot dare, scientists. I, dare yeah. I say it could rule the world, uh, right. Who, who also want that ring, but it's never quite explained. by, uh, I think so. It's Victor Spinetti and Roy Kinnear who are playing right. the scientists. And Victor Spinetti was like in Hard Day's Night, in Hell right. and in the really the one low filmic moment of the Beatles, which is Magical Mystery Tour. Foe, uh, but he he uh, he says, if I had that ring, I dare I say, it, could rule the world. But we don't really right. know how he intends and to use this ring to. I rule
1: wanted the to world. say that ring that Ringo's wearing. When I see this ring, it it makes me flash back to being a kid when they used to have these candy rings. Yeah. Right. Oh yeah,
2: it totally looks like a candy. Ring. It totally looks
1: like a candy ring, like one of those big giant sucker like lolly rings. You know, like a strawberry lolly ring. That's what it really looks like. You know, it's just hilarious. Yes.
3: Oh,
2: so now I have a question. Were they like I didn't understand exactly, specifically what nationality or where this I was this good- cult.
1: I was going like, to get into this. This is a they're I, generic Oriental, is well, how they describe <laughs> I think I think the thing is, is that you know, there's a lot of people actually. Well, not a lot of people, but some writers have commented on the blatant racism in this film, where yeah. it's, they're, <laughs> they're supposed to be Hindu, you know, and they're supposed to be Indian, and not a one is Indian. And, no. And, and it, it almost gets back to like uh, I'm bringing up Peter Sellers again where it's like you know my name is RD Bardiner Birdinghamums Nums. You know? <laughs> it's like,
2: it's like then oh, they make that, then they make that joke later on when they go to the
1: the uh, restaurant. Chinese restaurant
3: Yeah,
1: yeah and, uh, yeah, and how no, 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 they are all British yeah. yeah we got one in the back i think he's down in the basement and they oh, go I, in I
0: there tell, I tell a lie there is one from the from the far east yeah
1: nice right place, right, nice right bloke isn't he
0: <laughs> was that Alf Garnett I think that was Warren Mitchell
1: yeah but it's just it's just funny how they could get away with it back in the day whereas today it would just be like oh man this is horrible you know because it's um you know it's just it's just like it just kind of takes the piss with colonialism you know right. or, or, you know it's just you get all these you know all, all these Brits playing Indians and, and it's just you know and he, and even you know the the lead dude who um, the lead guru guy what's his what's his title again shit um,
0: uh, clang his name is clang
1: clang yeah well what's his title he's like he's he, they call him uh, uh, swami uh, swami yeah swami you yeah. know you know and it's so fun. No. Even his... How do
2: you feel like this reflects on their later shift to uh, to you know going and visiting different gurus and and their their shift to their interest in
0: like <laughs> right. so, so do you imagine that when they went to up, the first when they went to meet me up with wonder. the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi he right. said I so, watched
1: your probably... watched your film help I found it quite amusing right I <laughs> probably looked at him and he says you you think that's pretty fucking funny don't you yeah 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 yeah. <laughs> Laugh it up, Beatles. Fuck you. You know I, mean? I I'm not going to take this you... Movie a is also,
2: this movie is also the first time that George Harrison encountered a sitar.
1: Right. Right. So- I I thought that was kind of funny, where they go in the restaurant and they're playing the Middle Eastern versions of all the Beatles stuff. I thought that was yeah. hilarious, you know? I love that. But, the, you know, the guy the guy had such... Um, the the Klang character had such a terrible accent... And the one time when they they go and raid the Beatles' house and there's the big fight and then all his minions come running out and he almost, he sounded to me like Gandhi, you know, in a Thai brothel where he says, oh my goodness, gosh, withdraw, withdraw, you know? (laughs) And he's just like, oh my God, man. Like, are you for real? Like, it's just so bad, you know? And the accents, like, you know, the, the terrible accents in this film, they're almost as bad as the thalidomide baby, you know. I think that guy that sounds like, "Hey, my name is Sylvester Stallone." You know, it's like, you know, like you can't get any worse than accents like that. I mean, holy shit! You know, marbles in your mouth. I mean, come on, man.
0: What do you mean it's not Sylvester Stallone?
1: What are you saying? Well, I'm, I, I'm saying that this is a good film. but The only thing that makes it great is the fact that Sly Stallone isn't in it.
0: Uh, really, uh, uh, uh But it is a fact that Help is the greatest action film of all time.
1: That's right. Right. We all, yeah.
0: yeah.
2: They were the pre-expendables.
0: Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that you see that'll get him calling uh, in with the some what? feedback. The, the what? The expendables.
1: So they were like the pre-expendables. The what? I've never heard of that movie. I mean, oh, I've the, never. It's,
0: it's the it's the prefab expendables.
1: Ah. Uh,
3: okay.
0: So something what I what I really liked about the film, and we've already sort of gone and mentioned about the links to uh, the Goons, and you know to what then later on came to be inspired as Monty Python. So there was this whole sort of uh, you know British movement of surrealistic humour, and this is right throughout this film. And I've sort of gone and made notes of a few moments that I just can't see ever happening in an American film, certainly not of the time. So, you know, John Lennon calling people by their profession rather than their names. You, you've failed, haven't you, jeweler? Or, or, you know, yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and the whole thing, which I I wonder if the Python team took this from this film, or whether it was just a British tradition. So you get the Pepper Part Potts.
1: one, part two? Oh. No, no, okay. oh, yeah, no,
0: that definitely they, they stole from this film. No, I'm talking the yeah. Pepper pots at the beginning of the film and say, wave, what? Wave, they nice boys just like they used to be, you oh, know. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> Hello, Mrs. Fishwick. Yeah, yeah, right. right. <laughs> and, but it's it's that whole thing. I, I guess it, it's a it's a big Australian thing as well. But it goes to show it's a British thing about you know we like right. our we like our heroes to be humble and we want them to be the same as they were before they started. But that's right, a, and that's awesome
1: how they walk into separate houses and it's all the same place. You know. It was a, it yeah, was that was thing. awesome. Was oh, set yeah.
3: design. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I was talking with I was talking with my son Max about that today, and he said they did the same thing in Yellow Submarine. And I thought, my goodness, you're right, they did too. I mean, they didn't That's all sort of walk right. into the same room, but right. you know, but right. it, they all live in the same house. So that the Beatles
1: really, then, did, they and, really did live it's together. So funny, there's the bit yeah, where it's
2: so funny because as a young girl, like I always imagined, oh yeah, my band is gonna live together. Like I was <laughs> just
1: imagine that it was just the right. thing that people did. And it's funny because, again, like, you know, like the monkeys all lived together and the Partridge family all lived together, right. you know, and it's like, you know, Scooby-Doo, they all lived together. Like, you know, it's like everybody, that was just what you did, you know. Mm-hmm. But they, you talk about the surrealism, Morris. There's the other bit, too, where Paul Paul winds up in the ashtray.
0: That's right. Well, the, the adventure yes. of and McCarp, carpet. not just the fact that he ended up shrinking, but the fact right. that they have that thing written on the screen and, in a
3: very judgmental uh, fashion.
1: And I wanted to say the one guy that one of my favorite bits in the film that's so stupid, but I love it and I smile every time I see it is their gardener when he puts the the little the wind up teeth on the on the carpet. That. Yep, and, it's and almost, he says, he, he, a,
0: he looks at them saying, "Oh, you, you ready for me to do this? Yeah, yeah, off you go, yeah, mow right. the mow the
1: lawn." Yeah. And what's even better about him is that he actually he actually takes part in the song where he's playing the flute during uh, Hide Your Love Away. Right,
0: right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. The, the, I love the, that. Other, the
1: other very surrealistic
0: moment, this uh, I think it was like the running gag. It happened at least was it twice or even three times possibly in the film, where Mal Evans, their their real life roadie, played as a swimmer who was you know making his way. Oh yeah, the yeah, channel. yeah. And comes up under the ice. <laughs> And he, he comes says, up oh, up which, which, way, which way to the north? And, and they all point that way. And no one bats an eyelid. It's like it's the most normal thing for um for yeah. uh, this guy to be and popping up in the ice and swimming and pointing him in the
2: I, right direction. But weren't a lot of people always trying to swim the English Channel and right. stuff? Yeah, like, that is, seems like it was such
1: a big thing at that time. This is, yeah, and I this was going to say, too, another surrealist moment. I'm, and I think maybe, correct me if I'm wrong or if you guys got the same vibe, but... Uh, with the with the big army battle on the uh, on the beach mm-hmm. to me to me that was a total later that would get caught by Python for the end of Holy Grail
0: I I can say that I hadn't thought about that but yep yep I can I can uh... because
1: it, it, it's kind of like where you know everybody's getting into this big battle and then these people just come in and it's like well where did you come from where did you guys it's like it's like it, it totally breaks down the whole scene right you know right, right. And, it, and it just it just gets ridiculous where he comes to, uh, like that Mel Evans guy comes in out of the ocean again, and he shows up on the beach, and they're all good at it. And it's just like, and it just totally reminds me of you know, the end of Holy Grail where the cops show up, you know, and this is kind of... Right. Now,
0: a- another thing that's sort of interesting about the film, but that's not within the film itself, it, I mean, you would have read like you know a, a ton of Beatles books or... or- heard from you know, a ton of sources, and I think it's even mentioned in the uh, big anthology book where they interview all all four of them about this, um, where basically it says that their time on the set, they felt that this was a bit of a... In some respects, they felt that this is a bit of a miserable film for them. Hard Day's Night, they had a lot of things to contribute in terms of their, their dialogue or their behaviour. I mean, that film, Hard Day's Night, was more like... Um, I don't know. Would you call it cinema verite, sort of documentary style fiction? It was fictionalized, a fictionalized tale that was sort of true. Uh, Whereas this was just a story. Could have been about anyone, but they just happened to put the Beatles into it, and they reckon that they spent most of their time in the trailer offset just smoking dope and getting themselves stoned and they reckon if you look carefully enough in the film you can see the reds of their eyes because they spent most of their time having a laugh but it wasn't from the script
2: right well it seems like so much of this movie was just an excuse to go on vacation you know like oh now we're in the bahamas now we're in the
0: alps you know? that's yeah yeah that's that's what they say in the um in the anthology book they say, well what do we do now well, let's go to austria well, let's go to the well, bahamas that's... we've never been there
1: but it's kind of like going back to Bond, like, you know, where you, you know, I mean, you've got, you know, all the all the exotic locations of the Bond films. And, you know, and with them, this is just kind of all in one, you know? It's just kind of like Bond bounced, bounced he was the globetrotter and bounced from one place to the next. And, you know, that was in different films, but they're saying, well, we're going to be better than Bond. We're going to do it all in the same film.
2: You
0: know? Right, right. Another
2: nice thing that, thing that, going, that, that cracks me right up. Not going Another thing that cracked me up was, uh, you know, like in the in the segment for I Need You, you know, like it's really cool and I love that that number. And then all of a sudden they show that they're in front of Stonehenge. And like it's such a right. casual thing like, in the background.
0: And only the Beatles right. could do that and be casual in front of Stonehenge. Maybe them in Spinal Tap.
1: <laughs> there was an actual, I think there was a tribute to the goons too at the, um, where they're going to the airport and they're wearing their disguises.
3: And yeah, that was
1: almost beards. like, yeah, and they're wearing beards and weird glasses and shit. Well, that's almost the same way that Peter Sellers used to dress up. Him and Spike Milligan, they they would do, they dressed up the same, almost exactly the same. So it I was kind of like a nod to the goons there.
0: Actually, I think as much, I've read that Richard Lester might have had something to do with the goons. I don't know if he, mm. um, uh, if he directed any of their, uh, uh, or it had something to do with their radio specials or... Or something, but but I I I do know that Richard Lester, as well as you know, the Beatles, admiring him, but they had first hand connection through uh, through Richard
1: Lester. And you know, as goofy as it sounds, I was going to say too that um, something I just remembered is, I I want a bed like John Lennon had. I know a floor bed that was so cool.
2: Also, you know what else I want? I want the whole like automat area that Ringo had, where they would like shoot sandwiches.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which he used as a weapon. Right. <laughs> we should have a little bit of a chat about um about some of the people who were not Beatles in this film. We sort of gonna mention a little bit, so Leo McKern as uh as Klang, the um well what did you call it? the the Swami, the head of the yeah. the head of the group. And he he went on to do rumpole of the Bailey later on, I wonder whether anyone on the set said, so really, I mean, Leo, you did great, but really for me, your acting highlight, your, your, uh, of your thespian life is clang, I wonder whether he was was proud of of that part, but he certainly looks like he's having a good time.
1: He totally reminded me of kind of like a Peter Ustinov, like, like, like something like that, you know, he just totally reminded me of this, that he played it straight and so serious, but it was funny. I love the bit where he he's sitting down with looks almost like a cardinal, where they're having lunch. <laughs> that's right. When he's talking about, it, he's saying, you know, well, young people just have to learn how to sacrifice, have their own sacrifice. You know, <laughs> I I know you you might not understand where I'm coming from, but you know, let's you agree know. to
0: disagree. Right. And that cardinal's not saying a word.
1: Right, right, right. But it's brilliant, you know. Or when he says. You, you know, if there's no ring, there's no sacrifice. If there's no sacrifice, there's no communion. If there's no communion, there's no me. You know? Yeah. This is, this like is so. Yeah, this is so. Oh, But I, I just love that. that. That, That's one of my favorite lines, though, like when he gets so upset outside the house and like when he says, oh, my goodness, gosh, withdraw, withdraw. You know, it's just so great. That's right. Um, and his little his little lackey guy was pretty funny too, the foot guy. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah. He was great. I mean, when he's hanging, he's hanging from the Goodyear blimp. Product placement. Ah, uh, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Course, and and, and yeah. He, he he's got those feet, and he's like tapping them on the on the highway, and he's just like, "Geez, all the things I have to do for a sacrifice, shit." You know, like. <laughs> and, he, he,
0: and and while he's um as he jumps out of the blimp, that that famous line, Kylie that's,
3: that's, yeah, 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 right.
0: That's that's the big word of the film. I don't know why they sort of like didn't use that as a as a logo for the film. You know, Kyle, uh, if, probably if it was released today, it would be. And then again, if it was released today, they that section of the film they wouldn't be they wouldn't be uh, Men of the East. they would be. Yeah. I,
3: know, some, um, some.
1: I, I was going to say, like you know, the whole thing about the not using. Asians, you know, you know, and like the whole, the whole, you know, kind of racist element of it all. When I, when I was a kid, I went to the theater and I actually, late seventies, I think it was seventy seven or seventy eight. I went and saw the fiendish plot of Fu Manchu. It was Peter Sellers' last film. Right, right.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Where he played Fu Manchu, and there was music in it, and it was, it was almost like, like a parallel to help. Because it was it was it was done like a spy film, like like, like Help, and it, it was about a cult, and you know, and then Peter Sellers played you know Fu Manchu leading the cult, and like I said, there was music in it and everything. So I think it's so funny how it comes around full circle, where you know the Beatles and Lester are influenced by the Goons, and then wind up that you know maybe Sellers is influenced by the Beatles and what they did with Help.
0: So we're talking about influences again. So one thing that just came to my mind, I imagine that they were probably all big fans of the Ealing film studio. So that whole period of the nineteen fifties, you know, I mean, I know that Ealing made dramas as well, but they, I, I think they tend to be more famous for their comedies. And um, you know, I've only seen like a couple, but it, it seems to have that sort of absurdist sense of humour that, right. that that was taken on from from um, from uh, the Ealing the Ealing comedies.
1: Right, right, right. I would, I would also say too that, you know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm stretching a bit, but I don't think so. But I really think if it wasn't for help, then there wouldn't be things like the Benny Hill show either. Yeah,
3: yeah. yeah exactly. Like that's,
1: yeah, but that's what I got. That's what I got out of out of help. I mean, I there was bits of it that really reminded me of Benny Hill, right. and I, you know, and and it was just kind of that, you know, anything can happen. Mm. I mean, that magcap, yeah, right, the roughness right, of it, right? And somebody, somebody walks out of a wall, and then Ringo just like, somebody just walked out of a wall, and then John's just like, everybody walks out of walls, Ringo, don't you know? And, oh, okay, and like, no, it's just. Oh, can um, we
2: talk about when uh, when John wakes everybody up?
1: Oh, that was great. He calls everybody <laughs> in the- yeah. a real wake
0: up, real wake up call. Yeah.
1: That's like a Skype call.
0: So, so we effectively, uh, Tim was your John, Wendy. Yeah. yeah. Yes. I, yes. Yes. I was going to say one. Of my, I think my favourite line in the film, uh, I I think it was Ringo that said it, where um, because he's come to notice that any time something bad goes wrong, this is still fairly early on in the film. Uh, the character Arme, which is played by Eleanor Bron, just seems to show up and save them. And he says, he tells uh. He says, would you mind finding – would you mind explaining how it is that you seem to know when to show up just at a convenient time for you, you know, sort of –
1: That was after uh, the gas. That was after the gas. Right, right. It's taking the piss
0: out of the uh, uh, – out of maybe, you know, the, the spy films where someone just seems to show up in the nick of time and it's almost like acknowledging it's really ridiculous that you seem to be showing up and it's not believable to the audience but if we make this gag would you mind sort of explaining you know when it's convenient for you how you seem to know when to when to roll up to save us right
3: very very funny
1: right i thought the funny bit too was when um they're in the pub they go hiding into the pub and ringo winds up in the tiger pit and then everybody's singing. Nay, 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 nay. Yeah, <laughs> Ode to that's, Joy. Yeah, they, they've
0: got a. That's right. The, uh, the 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 famous Bengal tiger from the London Zoo. Yeah, very good. Right. Yeah.
3: <laughs> and,
0: and if you if you sing it the Ode to Joy from Beethoven's famous Ninth Symphony, then uh, that will soothe this savage breast, and then the whole world starts singing
1: it. Yeah, yeah. I'll what's that film.
0: I was going to say I watched the film stacks times as a as a young kid, and that was always my favorite moment.
1: Right. Or the other bit I, I liked was when when uh, they're sitting there playing poker, and uh, you know, and they're telling Ringo, "Come on, Ringo, you got to throw in, you got to throw in. Come on, you know, you got to give something up." And he's like, you're, "You're talking about my finger. I need this finger. We haven't seen you use that finger in an hour." Ringo, come yeah. on. <laughs> and he's like, "I'm using it now." It's like, "Come on, you don't need that finger. Come on, Ringo." <laughs>
2: When they're blatantly talking about where they can find another drummer.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so they they should have got the guy from. Um, oh, oh uh, Pyromania. Who was it again? Uh, that's the...
3: Lassard. Lassard. Rick Allen.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's him. They should, they should have gotten him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He'd a useless <laughs> hand.
2: See, but can I just say that that's also another nice thing is that this movie also didn't play on the typical bad drummer jokes. You know, <laughs> like right. it could have been really easy to you know make make a bunch of bad drummer jokes, but they didn't do that. Well, you know, I
1: was ta- I think I might have told Morris this, but um, there was an article clipping I saw of the Beatles once of a journalist that wrote it, and, and it was hilarious. Where it says, uh, "You know, you know, the the, the the talented John Lennon, the charismatic Paul McCartney." The the handsome George Harrison and Ringo Starr, the drummer. <laughs> it's just holy like God. holy shit. Yeah.
0: Oh, we're gonna we're gonna hunt that guy down. Yeah, yeah.
2: So- My other favorite part I loved when they're in the restaurant and Paul's dancing with the you know the cult woman and like he and and she be trying to tell him something important, be like say no more. She's like I can say no more. <laughs> yeah, right.
0: right, right. I, I think what what I liked about that scene in particular was how they kept on sort of going in these quick shots. That's what made it so funny. If they'd sort of like dragged it out, it wouldn't have been quite as funny. But they go from say no more, I can say no more, and then they cut to uh, Ringo and and uh, and John at the table, and John making that you know really bad joke about the se- the football season pass in his soup, and he says, oh, I like a bit of seasoning in my soup, and then they cut back to. Uh, paul dancing with with eleanor bronn it's just these quick cuts i think that's it it was richard lester was definitely a great pick to be working with the beatles you know once again that that whole the association with the goons and made this film more than just something that was only supposed to last like a month in the cinema and then go on to the next thing and that's why we're still here talking about it years later um probably the last thing i want to mention and i'd be interested in your opinion in this, Wendy, because you know you being a big uh, power pop fan as well. For me, I think that the first side of the vinyl of Help, so you know the actual songs that appear in the film, is probably in a way the the it's the beginning of power pop. I mean, they had you know four great uh, albums before that, but Help, you know, it was album number five at least in England and Australia, not in America. I know they sort of did a funny thing with how they sort of. Readjusted the songs and had, um, had different album conventions. I think until Sgt Pepper, anyway. But Help, as it was originally released, I think was probably uh, probably one of the first great power pop albums, as we like to term it nowadays. And certainly that oh, that first side of Help yeah. is probably my favourite Beatles side. I know people talk about the later albums, and I love. I still think you know Revolver all up is probably my favorite beatles album but help as a side of music for me is probably as fine a side of music as ever been recorded in pop music
2: absolutely i mean it's got those chimey jangly rickenbacker you know it's got a lot of that that stuff that we associate as being power pop
0: now yep and yeah, um, yeah i know that it, probably the only people because you know you mentioned before tim about you know uh, and ringo the drummer and there's been a lot of Horrible accusations about oh yeah, Ringo was lucky to end up with the rest of them. But for mine, I think that the people who appreciate Ringo the most are other drummers. No drummer makes fun of Ringo. Yes.
1: Well, you know, no. you know, what I think, what I think is really interesting too is how you know, as much shit Ringo got, you know, in the press and everything, he's the primary linchpin of the movie.
0: Oh, absolutely. He, he was mm-hmm. the he was the funny one. He was the actor. He was a natural.
1: Right. Right, he was a natural. With, that, and, you with know, that
0: deadpan style of his.
1: Right. And you know, and then later on, the, the irony is, you know, you'd get Ringo singing, They're going to put me in the movies. Completely. And all I got to do is act naturally. For sure. <laughs> and he does, he does. I think I'm going to yeah, have to yeah, uh, yeah.
0: put that music in there somewhere in this podcast. Oh, yeah. But, um, yeah, no, I, 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 once again, I, I was going to specifically point to Ticket to Ride, some of the some of the work on there is just so subtle but so expert and oh, yeah uh a, a lesser drummer couldn't have come up with anything as nearly as good as that and it probably it stumped a lot of you know so-called really great rock drummers who came out later on who said yeah. how the hell did he come up with that it's absolutely brilliant so uh, yeah. you know
1: so- you know what's so funny is like i mean i've got musician friends for years and years, like when we were kids, we were younger and we were in high school, and all they wanted to do was buy Ricky's at the music store, you know? Buy those Beatles, the beetle bass and oh, the, yeah, yeah. the, Ric- yeah. the Ricky's, like, oh, you know, and just to get that sound. I mean, yeah. you know, th- it's a funny thing about the Beatles, or, I mean, anybody, their music was so rudimentary and it was so simple but nobody could play it like they did you know it's kind of yeah. like it's kind of like the Ramones and A C D C DC and a lot of bands it's like yeah you can play those songs but you don't play it like that
0: you know there's complexities yeah. in, in those songs which I don't think that uh, certainly I don't think a lot of non-musicians give them credit for but there's there are some chord changes in there that you think how the hell did you think of that it's um, right, cer- certainly, it's certainly inter- from this point interplay.
1: on It's an interplay between the four of them that, you know, I mean it it's kind of like and like anybody else, you know, you're not them. So like I'm saying, like they you know, it's like fingers on one hand, you know. It, it, it's just they, they work together and, and that's it.
3: Right.
0: Right. Any final thoughts on um on the film? Do we um, wanna do we wanna write they... this or do we just wanna just end off with their final thoughts? Uh, I say
2: final thoughts because okay, I'm with you. Know. I'm with you.
1: Go ahead, guys.
2: I mean, I I certainly you know I don't feel for it the way that Zom does the Beyond. I would certainly never give it a two. <laughs> oh
1: fuck that! No way, man. Don't even get me going on that. You know, don't even get me going. No, I I I I I choose to believe that Zom was whacked out on cold medicine and he saw an entirely different movie than I have.
2: But yeah, I love this movie. I still feel it's it's earnest. It has heart. It's still funny.
0: Yes. Right. Uh, I've, seen, I've I, seen this a stack of times, so... um right. I'm still laughing. And I can still... I, I show it to my kids, and they don't say, I don't get this. What's funny about this? They both absolutely piss themselves. Well, I've got to say, like, years ago, at, at uh, our rep cinema here in Melbourne, the Astor, they had a double feature of Hard Day's Night and Help, and I dragged about ten people to come along. And I got you know basically the whole comment was you know you're letting your love for the beatles music uh you know push you to thinking that these films are actually good and i know why is it that you why is it that you guys don't see it right um, but you know they probably went on to see dumb and dumber or something like that i don't know
1: right well <laughs> the thing is is like you know there's nothing wrong with lowbrow cinema too and i mean i don't want to necessarily say this is lowbrow but it's not Seven Samurai you know House. but I mean House. but this is this is something you know you can sit down with some friends too with a big bowl of popcorn and a box of beer Absolutely. and just have, have fun you know I mean like you don't have to it's like if you get up and go to the bathroom you're not missing anything and then you can just jump right back into it it's like are they still chasing them yeah they're still chasing them you know like you know and that's that's the gist of it you know but but i think again like i was mentioning earlier i think a lot of not a lot of people but some people might get put off on you know younger people might not quite understand um or they may see it as an excuse where you know back in the day a lot of you know um caucasians played minorities and they'd say, well, why did why did they have to do that? Well, they didn't have to do that. They just did it. Well, why did they just do it? Because they didn't want to hire Indians. Well, why didn't they want to hire Indians? Because that's the way they were. Like, you know, it's it, it's just a it's it's just a sign of the times. And I'm not saying it's you know I'm not defending it. I'm just saying it, it is what it is. You know. Right.
0: Well, there you go. We've covered the racist element. So this is that's a very silver and gold attribute, isn't it?
1: <laughs> but, but you know what? I wonder though. I really wonder if if help played anywhere in bombay in the theater and you know like a bunch of people sitting in the theater going what what the fuck is this shit <laughs> like i mean come on man like you think i fucking speak like that like fuck fuck you beatles you know <laughs> <laughs>
3: well
0: they might have talked about this i love it if
2: somewhere it. there's like I'd love it if somewhere there was
1: like an Indian version of the Beatles and they they were doing well, their bad like well, white people impression. Well, you know, but this is the beauty about the Beatles is that, you know, so many cultures um have karaoke. Not not just Korea and Japan, but so many cultures have their own their own, you know, type of karaoke. And the Beatles are first and foremost in every karaoke book, at every place I've ever done karaoke in, you know, America, Canada, Japan. Korea, they've, they've got the Beatles are first and foremost there. And I mean, you know, as it, it, drunk as you get with anybody, any culture, you know, I mean, they'll try to sing Ticket to Ride and they'll try to sing Strawberry Fields. Like, you know, oh, you know, yeah. yeah. Or the best is Obladi Oblada, you know. Oh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Obladi da Rife goes on. Ra, 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 Rife goes on. Oh, I knew you, you were going to go there. But <laughs> no, it's It's fun it's fun and I'm not trying to make fun of anybody. I'm just saying it's like some, something that's so significant or something that, that strikes you so strong or so deep transcends culture mm. and, 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 and you try and and you'll just say, fuck it. I'm going to do it the way I, I, I know how to do it. You know, you just do it, you know? So, I mean, and you're not making fun of anybody cause it's just like, you know, you gotta, you gotta give them their props for going balls out and at least trying, trying to do it, you know? Right,
0: right. Yeah. Alright, I think at this point, we'll um, have another break, and then we'll come back and talk about uh, a film from 1996 called That Thing You Do, uh, and
1: uh, we'll be back very shortly.
0: What can you expect from Film Rave?
2: It's the type of film
1: that you just grabs your ball and doesn't let go, and if you don't have it will attach
2: to your body just to grab it hold of them and not let go. What I can't even play about
3: these a except that plain and simple piece of
2: Take a strap-on up the ass. I don't care. Don't sit through this movie. Wasting my fing time with this Annette. Stupid. Boring. Unfunny. Annoying. F- dull. Brainless. Stupid. Effortless. Pointless. Useless. Movie. I hated this movie. This is an F.
0: A complete F. But I don't even think F is good enough for this piece of f-. this is This is a fucking failure. Splendid! Go to filmRave we can network.com or go to iTunes and search Justin Oberholzer's Film Rave and subscribe. Cheerio! You,
3: doing that thing you do
1: Breaking my heart
0: Back from break, Tim over in Korea, Wendy over in America, Morris here in Australia. This is really what podcasting is all about,
1: keeping it international. That's right.
0: And we're here as the silver and gold substitutes. And we're, uh, we're talking a little music film tonight. We're talking about drummers being the hero. And speaking of drummers being the hero, we're now going to talk about 1996's film, That Thing You Do directed and written by one Tom Hanks. Now, normally I hear the name Tom Hanks. And with maybe a couple of other exceptions, I sort of run a mile. I mean, look, I love Splash. I've got to confess, I'm a soft spot for Splash. Uh, and Big, but beyond that, but I'm a sucker for a film about a band. And when this came out, I had to go see this. So, um, both of you guys well, well, Rindy, you suggested it, so I know that you had seen this before. Um, summarize. Oh, this
2: is my favorite of all
0: time. <laughs> so give yeah, us, give it's us basically
2: just—it's just—it's just a story of the rise and fall of a pop band around that Beatles era around the '60s. You know, it's just a small town bunch of guys from from the middle of Pennsylvania. You know, just uh, just making their way to the best they know how. And, and how the drummer is sort of like, you know, the linchpin of this band and, and uh, you know, how he, it, it, I like so much the fact that like, he wanted to be a jazz drummer, like he just wanted to do like other stuff, but he ends up in this band and he sort of propels them into the stardom. And so the rise and fall of their career, and I like that.
0: I like one thing in that, um, that makes this, well, I guess a film that we could compare this to in a very superficial way, because it's about a band, and it came out, or well, maybe a little bit earlier, was uh, was the commitments. So you know, this is about the rise and fall of a band. You know, they come from nothing, make it big, and then fall back down to earth. And the commitments is about a band who really go nowhere. But mm-hmm. but um, but it's it's about the um, the go nowhere and the go nowhere. But basically, they both end up at the same same spot at the end of the film. Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! But um, anyway, so what? What's your earliest memory of seeing this, Wendy? Did you go see this at the cinema when it came out?
2: Oh yeah, yeah. I bought the soundtrack. I loved it.
0: Okay, so but that's... Uh,
2: but yeah, I mean, I think like like the 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 cast is so perfect. Like Jonathan Sheck... Really didn't do very much uh, after this that I've known of. Like, he was in, he was in like, The Doom Generation. He was in a couple of those, like, you know, those weird sort of early 90s films. He, he made a film and then called well, welcome, welcome
0: to Whoop Whoop, which I haven't seen, but I hear is absolutely awful.
2: Mm-hmm, yeah, and and uh, Steve Zahn, who I think is adorable. I yes. love him. I wish I saw him in more.
0: Have you watched Treme? And Tremé?
2: Ethan Ambrose. What?
0: Have you watched Treme?
2: Oh, I watched the first season, and I felt so bored with it. <laughs> oh,
0: look, I'm, I'm, I'm madly in love with that show, but I know it's not for everyone. But the thing is, you know, this good sweet image that I have of, of Steve Zahn goes completely out the door uh, when watching See, it in, no. in Treme.
2: <laughs> I want my sweet Steve Zahn. I don't want anything. <laughs> I saw him on the talk show once talk about how he owns one of those fainting goats. One well, of those little goats that like collapses when you when you get too loud around it. <laughs> that is the image of Steve Zahn. I want Steve Zahn is with a fluffy little fainting goat. That's what he's perfect to me. I don't want
1: anything else. I think I might have said this to you earlier, Wendy, but is it just is it just me or do you guys get that crispin glover vibe off of Steve Zahn?
2: You do, because I can see him going creepy, it's true.
1: <laughs> he just got that kind of wackiness to him that this is yeah. Yeah.
2: And I loved him so much. What was that Werner Herzog film with Christian Bale? With right
1: POWs? the Escape. Uh, yeah, yeah, I know the one you're talking about. He was good in that too. I yeah, saw... it's
2: based on Little Dieter Wants to Fly. Was based
1: what, on what, was, uh, what was that movie where he marries that girl, or he's going to marry the girl that's a total bitch, and he can't break up with her? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Oh, it was a comedy, like almost like a Farrelly Brothers comedy, and Steve Zahn was the lead in it. Oh, what was that name? The... I saw that one. That was that was good. That See, was the scussful. only other one I
0: remember him being in, I think, was uh, was it called Happy Texas? Was that with, with um, Yes? Oh, uh, 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 William H Macy. Is, that, is he mm-hmm. and he's like a escaped convict or something like that? And, and does he get together with uh, Ileana Douglas? She, who I'm, who I'm pretty sure is someone who you really love, Wendy.
2: I love her. There you go. That's a perfect pairing for me. I would want I should go watch that movie again right now.
0: Right. Excellent. <laughs> well, hang on. No, no, not till we <laughs> finish doing the podcast, of course. <laughs> I was going to just leave you. I was no, going to leave you. No, no, don't, don't, don't do that. Don't do that. So, okay. So, basically, just to elaborate a little bit on on uh, what Wendy's gone and said. So, this little band in uh, in Pennsylvania, they. Um, they're, they're just a garage band, and they've gone and written a tune. And uh, The main linchpin of, of the film, uh, a character called Guy Patterson, played by um, an actor called Tom Everett Scott, uh, he works in his father's conservative uh, appliances store, and their drummer breaks his arm playing silly buggers, and uh, they ask him to fill in for one night. And, of course, they've got this little ballad that they do called that thing you do and they play that once or 10,000 times throughout the film but uh, it never
2: gets old to me
0: no same here, same here. but I was going to say I went to see that film when it came out in the cinema with my wife's cousin and <laughs> she came out saying I'm sick of that song I just don't need to hear it again so stupid <laughs> immature bastard that I am I went out and bought the CD single remember those and <laughs> I called I called up my wife's cousin knowing that she had a Knowing when she was going to be out, and knowing that she couldn't stop her answering machine, so I played the whole song down into her answering machine, knowing fully well that once she got home, <laughs> she'd have to play it and listen to the whole thing through again because you know, that's the moron sort of person that I am. But anyway, so they it, it covers it covers their rise, and you know the the uh, I guess associated with the group is Liv Tyler, who is in Jonathan Sheck's Where's Well. Well, she's sort of my Girlfriend, and you're thinking, how does she end up with a dick like him?
1: Right. Well, you know, they they could have called the movie, you know, that girl you do. <laughs>
0: I'm I'm sure that in um in the pornography capital of Hollywood, somewhere there that there is a version that is named that.
1: Right. Yeah. No, this is the this was the first time I'd seen this film. Right. Um. Because because you know. The truth be told, I mean, I remember when it came out, seeing the trailers in the theater and I thought, nah, man, this is going to be pretty pedestrian. And, you know, I, I didn't think it would go places I wanted it to go, or I thought it would go, but surprisingly enough, you know, watching it, I was really kind of impressed with a lot of the the nuances and a lot of the things that, you know, it, 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 it didn't go to places I thought it would, and it went to places I didn't expect, so I, th- I, I was I was quite surprised with this one.
3: Right, right.
2: Well, let's talk about the song itself. And uh, who wrote it?
0: Okay, so it was written by uh, the songwriter Adam Schlesinger, who's in really one of my very favourite power pop bands, The Fountains of Wayne. Now, what I haven't mm-hmm. been able to find out, I think I asked you this, Wendy, during the week, there was, like, I don't know if it was a competition, or they just petitioned a whole lot of songwriters to come up With the song that would be the song in the film, and Adam Schlesinger's song was the one that was chosen, and I think the runner-up was um, the song that ended off the closing credits of the film, but I I believe there were a stack of songs, and I'd love to know who else submitted songs, and whether indeed any of those songs exist anywhere, uh, either on a bootleg or there was an official album (laughs) recorded.
2: They should have. They could have totally, totally marketed a second soundtrack album of potential songs. I would have bought
0: it. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And, and look, I, I think what's interesting what? is that <laughs> really the <laughs> the song that they do, well, or you know, that thing you do, and its counterpart over the closing credits, plus any of the songs that the O'Neiders perform through. Really, they're the <laughs> only. They're the only pop band throughout the entire film. Uh, I mean, because they, they join what's called you know, the the Playtone label, the Playtone galaxy of stars. But really, who are the who are the other artists that they worship? There's, there's yeah, you know, Diane Dean. Who's I don't know. Yeah. Is, is, she, is she supposed to be like a Dusty Springfield rip-off or something like that? She does well. a really sort of. Uh, it, it should be said, all the songs that are in the film were written for the film. They're not. They're, there's no real artists who are emulated. There, there might be. Um, Artists too, you think? alright, oh, that's going to be the Dusty Springfield character, or that's going to right. be um, the Mr. The...
2: Downtown song. Oh, that that like that's that guy?
0: Well, that that was like ten years in advance of Barry Manilow. I just thought, you know... <laughs> right?
1: <So> that <laughs> reminds me. That kind of reminds me of like Vic Damone, or like uh, some of these like uh, oh, what was it? Uh, oh shit! Now, what am I thinking of? Sinatra's son. Because Sinatra's Sinatra's son was a singer yeah. too, okay.
3: mm-hmm. so
1: and he remind yeah, he kind of reminded me of Sinatra's son or like those uh, those guys from the fifth, like those not not uh, the kind of the Vegas one, you know, almost like long long before um, what's his name with the mustache, uh, Mister Vegas. Uh, shit. Oh, um, uh, Sammy Davis. No, 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 no.
2: Not Humperdinck. I felt like
1: he was kind of Engelbert Humperdinck. Yeah, yeah, but not not Humperdinck. No, what the – oh, God. Oh, at so like didn't he? I'm so, I'm so embarrassed right now. Wayne Newton. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Wayne, Wayne Newton. He was long before Wayne Newton, but he kind of had that kind of – that Vegas kind of like, you know. And it was the same, same thing about um, – uh, what's his name there? Kevin Spacey. Not Kevin Spacey. Kevin um, – Oh shit when he he plays the the big guy uh, the big wig in the theater. Oh the the Vic Yeah. Uh, yeah yeah. Kevin uh, oh shit what's his Kevin Pollan? Kevin Pollan. Yeah yeah. When he when he's he's up there like hey hey what do you want what do you got hey you know it's like yeah. that that kind of Vegas stick thing you know. Yeah yeah.
2: Well it's very interesting to me that era in which um record labels would take all those bands out and they do like one song they do the big hit song and i mean it must have like it just seems like it must have cost so much and put so much work you know to to bring like all these like five or six musical acts from town to town and have them do like two songs
1: well they didn't pay them a dime i mean the thing was it's like they basically said that you know when we get done when everything is all said and done if it all pans out that's when you get your check you know Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean they give them per diems you get about a buck and a half a day in a ham sandwich and you'd be lucky if you got that you know right? I, I wanna and the
2: Chandelions on. were like the total supremes you know the, the very uh, the, right. the very Motown girl group I love them
1: I was going to say too that I think maybe uh, the Oneaters must have influenced the Rolling Stones when they wrote Brown Sugar because uh,
0: <laughs> oh yeah. yeah how so
1: oh well they Ethan Embry was uh, oh, right. so, dipping, yep. in the, dipping in the inkwell, so to speak. <laughs> yeah.
2: Now, also, let's explain why we called them the O'Neaters. So, so the name right. of the group is The Wonders. Right. But much like the Beatles, at the beginning of the group, they want to have, like, a clever spelling. And so right. they try to spell it, like, O-N-E-D-E-R-S. Yes. And nobody gets the name right. No All
0: one right. gets it. So let's talk about the, uh, the four main characters in the band – and really, I mean, I, I guess I, I'd sort of made note of the point that not just the band, but I guess a l- most of the characters throughout the film are caricatures, and the only two who seem to be a little bit more fleshed out, uh, ones who, you know, Tom Hanks says, right, I want you to focus on, on these two, right? These are the important ones. By the end of the film, these will be the important ones. But you've got mm-hmm. your you know, your Steve Zahn character, Lenny, uh, who's the uh, the lead guitar player, and he's you know, the, the joker of the band. And I, I sort of got to thinking that uh, reminded me of a line of, um, that, that was in man in the moon, the, the story about Andy Kaufman and, um, uh, where, where Jim Carrey says to Courtney love, um, it's just, it's so frustrating because no one knows who, who, uh, I really am. And, and she says something to her, well, you don't have a real personality or something. And she goes, Oh yeah, that's right. You know? We never get to know who he really is, and the Steve Zahn character brings me in mind of that. He's the he's the Joker, but he's not just the Joker for the camera like the Beatles were when the press conferences <laughs> rolled. But he was jokey all the time when they're playing cards with those two old men uh, on. Um, I, I, I think yeah. the, on one of the, the fair sites, um, you got you, you, the the lead singer songwriter played by um, by Jonathan Sheck, Who's so damn serious, and it's always, um, we need to record a record, and uh, it's about the music, and um, I'm gonna be. Yeah. What learning. about
3: my ballad? What about my ballad?
0: <laughs> and you know the bass player, who's the quiet one, and you know, the really the one who's just rolling with it, having a little bit of fun, and the the one human one is Guy Patterson, the drummer. But you got your other characters, you know the the one, you know Mr. Mr. White is. You know, he, he's a bit of a hard-ass, you know, the, the business guy, and he becomes a bit of a, you know, a prick towards the end, but then again, you know, with with um, the Jonathan Check character, he's, he's forced to be a little bit of a, a prick and bring in bringing the legalities of it, and you will do exactly what I said. You will sing that thing you do in Spanish. You will do, you will bend over and, and, and take it if I tell you to. Um,
2: you will be Captain Geach and the Shrimp Shack Shooters.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was
0: do, awesome. Kind of cello, um,
1: Moon sorry. Moon Dush, the dummy, the dummy guy with a funny hat. He's right. looking out at the, uh, at the sea, and it's like, all right, do it, shocked, do it more, shocked. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. you know, I was going to say too that when you talk about the four characters and the parallel to the Beatles and everything, right. you also get a peep best in this too.
2: Oh, yeah, Giovanni Ribisi, yes, totally yes, the P-S.
1: Yes, yep. that's
2: right.
1: Yeah. But it's, you and, know, it, it's heroin. funny.
2: Like, the, one of the most pivotal scenes of the movie is when they first hear the song on the radio, you know. Right. And they all go running down the street. They all hear it on their radios, so or they all go running down the street and unite at the you know, the, uh, the appliance shop. My band never got that kind of moment. In this age of digital, like, I have always heard secondhand Like, hey, Wendy, I just heard your song on, you know... On a
0: podcast. Like, I've
2: never gotten to hear... Yeah, I've never gotten to hear my songs ever as they played, but I always hear about, like, after the facts.
0: I have to to (laughs) say... And I'm always
2: so bummed out about that.
0: I have to say that really is uh, probably one of my favourite scenes in any film ever. Just the the exuberance that they get of hearing this song for the first time and how it's all captured... I'm so sorry for you, Wendy, that you haven't had that moment.
2: (laughs) Some girls wait all their lives to get married. I just wanted to hear my song once.
0: It's a fair enough call. It's a fair enough call. Um, So I I guess probably I I want to ask you, Wendy, because you've seen the so-called director's cut up until about a week ago. I didn't even know that there was a director's cut, but you've seen it. So the theatrical cut went for about 90 minutes. How long did this theatrical cut go for?
2: Uh, i don't remember i caught it on i caught it on cable one night and i was so puzzled i was like i've seen this movie a million times <laughs> there were just like little things that i didn't remember being you know like they flush out a little bit more of like uh ethan Embry's relationship with, with the chandelier and and um you know sort of the prejudice that they face against that it's like little things like that i was like this is so strange, uh, you know, it was like when I first saw the, the, you know, the director's kind of aliens on television, I had no idea, you know, <laughs> like, I just thought, like, was I a complete idiot during some of these moments?
0: Right. So do you think that they added anything, like, in, in hindsight, do you think that they added any, anything of, of value to the film overall, or, or the original cut? told you everything that you need no
2: i think the original cut is just fine i don't think you need like the hollywood showcase or whatever i think like the original cut is just fine right <laughs> but it's nice i mean i'm at that thing you do completist i suppose i would like
3: to have <laughs>
0: right i want to i want to start a conversation here based on uh a, a couple of sentences from this book i've got this book called popcorn 50 years of rock and roll movies written by a guy called gary mulholland And he writes a lot of reviews of rock and roll films, generally a lot of them very unfavourable. He's a bit of a miserable bastard. Gary, if you're listening, lighten up. Um, But anyway, he writes a line, and this is not actually out of his review for That Thing You Do. This is out of his review for Let It Be. But he he writes his whole paragraph about uh, Let It Be and Gimme Shelter, these two films which supposedly slammed the lid on whatever the '60s dream might have been, and he writes this line saying, "It's a matter of debate." It, sorry, it's a matter of debate as to which of the two films, talking about "Gimme Shelter" or "Let It Be," uh, which of the two films is more sad and pessimistic about the failure of youth culture's attempt to replace the status quo with dancing and fucking in the streets. Now, for, so basically, there's this whole. I don't know if it's mythology or w- whether it's real, but to say that um, the sixties was a time of real rebellion, uh, as instigated through through the youth movement and through uh, its its music and the the so called counterculture, and when you watch this, Tom Hanks, you say has probably gone and and he's watched it through rose-coloured glasses or he's whitewashed it. I mean, okay, it was 1964 or 1965 when the film is set, and maybe that was certainly before the big counterculture of the late 60s, but certainly by this stage, uh, rock and roll music was supposedly something that you played, you listened to to piss off your parents. And the kids who are sort of listening to the Oneiders are also listening to Mr. Downtown in this fictitious world of music. And they're listening to, uh, I mean, the chantrelines in the film, it, it's it's a less dangerous version of what you were getting from, from Motown. Uh, right. And, uh, and the, the song that opens up the film, although, mind you, that's supposed to set the mood of the, the conservatism. That uh, that guy and you know the the uh, the other people in in the wonders were going against with this horrible horrible song, loving you lots and lots, you know that sound like it's being played <laughs> by by Pat Boone and, and singers. Uh, but what they say, so right? Well, what's coming is what the youth they were rebelling against. That, but. I, I don't really get much of a sense of that. It's not so much rebelling. It's like, well, now it's our turn to get mainstream acceptance, and that's what the Hollywood Showcase was all about.
2: Yeah, I am so grateful. I am so eternally, eternally grateful that uh, that it's not a movie about like their drug use or their, you know, like it's not a movie about sixties rebellion. I don't want that. Mm -hmm. If I want that, I'll watch. You know, Almost Famous. So I'll watch something (sighs) else. I don't. I, I wanted it, it to be like a light, fluffy portrayal of that time. That's why I like it.
0: I don't necessarily say that as a criticism of the film, but I just thought it was an interesting angle, given that there's so much yeah. talk about this was a time of rebellion and this film, it just, it just never really shows that. I, I guess the, well, closest, the closest that they come to rebellion is the contrast between uh, well, well I, I guess it's all to do with Guy Patterson once again. So Guy rebels against his father by going off to you know bang on his bongos as you know his father goes and tells him. But also, ironically, not so much. He doesn't rebel against him by playing in a rock and roll group or listening to rock and roll. He's he's a jazz guy. He listens to you know the, the fictitious character was it Del Paxton? You know he, he's playing yeah. jazz in the basement, and that's rebelling against his
1: father one thing i wanted to say that i think is kind of funny like when you talk about you know shaking up the system and things like that right. is uh, not to go off on a tangent but a film like uh, for example when i was a child i saw song of the south the disney right. film in the, in the theater yep. and now, you, Disney's basically all but buried that film. You can't, you can't see that film. You can't film.
0: get it on DVD, can you? No.
1: Not anywhere, right? Because, yeah. you know, and people oppose the portrayal of the smiling Uncle Remus as the happy slave and all this kind of thing, right? But in the thing you do, mm. you see the door, the door, Lama. Lamar, and he's smiling, he's really kind and everything, you know, and he's, you know, he plays, he plays a a role to a point, and then you see... He's the
2: magical black man, he's the
1: magical black man, yeah. But then you see Del Paxton, too, and when he meets, when, uh, you know, Shades meets Del Paxton, and then, you know, and he basically, you know, he gets illuminated, you know, he he gets schooled about what it means to play jazz, and, you know, what it means to be free and do what you want to do, right? And a lot of people might argue against, you know, these portrayals and say, well, you know, come on, you know, like, they they kind of, you know, like, whitened whitened up the whole, you know, experience. But I mean, well, that's probably what the way it was, you know, I mean, you you mean to tell me that you wouldn't find a black doorman in 1964? Yeah, you know, like, come on, that's the way it was, you know. So I mean, a lot of times, you know, now we kind of, um, I guess some people try to, they're apologists or whatever and people say well oh no you you can't show them too happy because they were they were really miserable or, or 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 but then again you can't show them too miserable because then it would you know that would be too bad too so it's like what do you do right mm-hmm. yeah so, yeah but i think it's I that think, political correctness
2: of uh, yeah yeah and,
1: yeah but I, I i i think you know i thought it was really brave of the film and really solid you know like for example when Shades walks in to show uh Ethan Ambry, the uh whatchamacallit, uh hip Parader, or the the top one hundred. Yep. And he look he looks in bed and he's got a little chicky in the sack with him. And he's and he's kinda like, you know, Ooh, you getting strange. Right on, man. You know, like yeah, he's giving you know, high fives and you know, and whatever. He walks out, you know, and there's nothing sad about it. I mean but I mean, I like I like the way the film kind of shows that you know it's a real romance and it, it's not just this you know kind of like jungle fever or whatever you want to call it. You know, I mean it's it's really sweet and the way that they kind of and I guess apparently.
0: It, so it sounds like the, you've seen the director's cut because it's only ever hinted yeah. at in the original theatrical yeah. cut. Right right, right, right,
2: and once again, I guess that's part of what the directors cut kind of tried to do that the that the original did, you know, the theatrical cut didn't do. Is it maybe it tried to have more of the, the racial elements, and and they're just like,
1: no, let's just take this out. This movie's about these boys, you know. Right, right, right. right. But then, but then again, you kind of it's hard to not bring it in because, um, with the jazz element at the end, mm-hmm. where you know, right. If you start against that, then you're getting into nothing but racial politics. <laughs> right, 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 right. But no, I mean, you know, I was really amazed at, um, I, I liked the one song that I did like in the film was the instrumental that they played during the Rumble.
2: You know, my favorite song in the film was uh, was uh, Dance With Me Tonight, the one that Steve Zahn's character sings.
1: Right, 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 right. Yeah. yeah. But it was, it was funny that bit, though, where they, they uh, some, you see somebody bringing in the fire extinguishers and you're thinking, what the hell is going on here? And then all of a sudden it's like, there's a rumble! And then they all start going <laughs> at it and they start playing that. It's almost like uh, Link Ray. You know? Yeah.
3: <laughs> it's hilarious.
0: Uh, Direct this cut. Haven't seen.
3: Well, oh, I'm doing out of it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Damn. I was going to ask and this is maybe reading too much into it, but do you think that ultimately the message of the film is that pop is frivolous and fleeting and jazz is forever?
2: No, I just think it was, um, I think it was just a, a tool of, uh, of, of saying like what's perceived as serious versus what's perceived as frivolous.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> you know, like, like, well, he was into jazz, so that makes him a real musician.
0: Well I mean because like we we start off the very you know the beginning of the film where you know guy's been working he's been playing um playing along to the del Paxton record uh in the shop's basement and you know towards you know a lot later on in the film he meets up with del Paxton that's his real hero you know none of these other musicians from the uh, uh playton galaxy of stars seems to be substantial enough they they're not presented as being Anyone of any interest, but the only musician who we get like a real sense of outside of the wonders is Del Paxton and his relationship with uh, with Guy. You know, he espouses these words of wisdom. Whether you want to say they're you know song of the South, or whether you want to say, well, no, there is something substantial there. But either way, he's the only other musician who's really I, given any substance.
1: I think. I think it really doesn't have anything to do with music at all. Any of it. I think to me. It's about the idea of that youth, when you're young, you're you're going forward with all your mates. You're going forward with everybody has these grandiose ideas of where the future is going to unfold. And what happens is eventually, you know, you can only go so far with your visions. And sometimes, you know, it can take you to places you never expect, but then people wind up finding their own separate perspectives, you know? And I mean, like, for example, Ethan Embry's character winds up getting in the military. Mm. And then, you know, um, and Steve Zahn winds up with that woman who looks like she's about 60. (laughs) No, but I'm saying, and then in the end, you know, like when, when Shades is sitting down with Del Paxton, Paxton says to me, he says, man, groups never last, dude. You just play who you play with, you know?
0: Which and, is kind and of a jazz ethos, really,
1: right? But I think, but I think again, it transcends music. It's, it's about the idea of he's got to, he's got to basically, you know, it's almost like falling out of space. You know, it's like you you burn up upon entry, and whatever's left is whatever's left. That's you, and all of this other stuff is just kind of, you know, fuselage or whatever, you know, and. And, and and it all burns up. Like, he, you know, he winds up being the star. He goes up into space, and then he comes back down. And when he comes back down, you see everything just slowly or quite rapidly burn away, you know. And then Tom Hanks looks at him and says, yeah, there's no surprise. I've seen this happen all the time. You know, I've seen, you know, I've seen him come. I've seen him go. Like, you know, it's like fireworks. You go up in the air, you're bright for a minute, and then, and then everybody's looking at the next one, you know. Right.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: But the one thing I wanted to say is, I don't know if it was if it was just me, but there was a moment there I, I was kind of getting skeeved out a little bit by Tom Hanks, where um, he's he's standing at the bar or something when they're they're in L.A. Mm. and he's with uh, Liv Tyler, and he says to her, "So how long have you been with him?" And he's at he's asking her how long she's been with her boyfriend, yep. and I'm thinking. Don't go there, Hanks.
2: What are you doing? No, I don't
1: think he was. I don't think he was either, but it was just kind of the way he said it. He was just kind of like, So, how long have you been with him? And I'm like, Don't go there, Hanks. Like, hey, come on, man. Back up, dude. She's just like, a yeah. you kid. Know, I'm like, you know, No, I, I oh. never
0: saw it like that. I always sort of saw it as he was trying to be more paternal. Like, you know, he had this right. authoritative yeah. figure over uh, the whole band. And I think right. he, he was basically saying, No, uh, really, that's not the guy you need to be with. The mensch right. is, is well, we know right. who the mensch is.
1: Right. And I think he he was almost kind of like, uh, he was almost kind of like a, uh, the Clarence character in Wonderful Life, you know, where he was kind of like that right. guardian angel, but at the same time, he was kind of like, well, he knew how the future was going to unfold, mm. you know, but he, yeah. but he really couldn't come out and just kind of say to these guys, you know what? In six months, you guys are going to be done because he, he couldn't he couldn't bust their bubble like that. You know what I mean? Right. right.
2: He couldn't be like, hey, fellas, you should save money now. Yeah, he couldn't. Yeah. Right. 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 Right.
1: Yeah. But um, the one thing I wanted to say, too, uh, for cameos in this movie, there's a whole whack of people. But um, one name that sticks out in particular to me is the name Peter Scolari. Oh,
2: yes, Bosom Buddies.
1: Right. Peter Scolari was actually Tom Hanks' uh, partner in the, the sitcom Bosom Buddies. Did you ever see that, Morris?
0: No, I haven't, no.
1: In the 70s, there was, when Tom Hanks started, when he was just really young, him and Peter Scolari, they played these two guys that were living in an all-women's apartment, and they dressed in drag and pretended to be women just to live in this building. Oh, wow. And that, that was the gist of the series. But Peter Scolari's in this, and... Uh, and also the other one that really stuck out for me from the 70s cinema was Alex Rocco. Oh, yeah. But he, he plays such a scummy, he plays the head of uh, the label.
0: Right, okay, yep.
1: And, uh, the young guy's trying to talk to him, they uh, the guitar player, and he, he's slapping mustard on a sandwich, and he's just grabbing meat and sticking it between bread and dipping it in mustard and cramming it into his face, you know? And it's just like, jeez. Like, yeah, but I mean... My favorite. Oh, my favorite cameo was chris isaac
0: oh yeah yeah uh, i i wish i would have used him a little bit more
1: right the church uh the church uh recording guy yeah i call yeah. bob it's so
2: funny but because, like, Chris Isaac popped up in a couple of movies, and he had that show. He had that show briefly, the Chris Isaac show. Yeah. And it's like, you always wanted more of him somehow. Like, I always felt like he could have, like, been funnier or done more. Like, he was so dry and deadpan. Right. And I don't know. I always wanted him to pop up in more movies.
3: Right.
2: But he can only ever be of that era. That was the thing. Like, you'll never see Chris Isaac as a modern guy.
0: No. He should put. He should put on a pair of shades and star in the Roy Orbison story.
3: Right. If they, yes.
0: If they would decide to make that. Mm. Um, I, I, I think probably the last point I want to make. Oh, well, I sort of already had alluded to, but um, the character that really pissed me off in this film was uh, was Guy's father. And he was mm. that, you know that stereotype passive aggressive. Who, uh, you know, he'd, he'd made retail his life and, and damn any plans his son may have about playing the drums. And he just, you know, wanted to make sure that Guy not only took over the store, but that he loved it. You know, he's calling him up and saying, you know, why is the light still on, Guy? Are you still playing the records in the background? You're using up electricity. You know, the sign guy, like, this is. All that's important, you know. My life is important. Your life is not what's important. And coming back to the rebellion theme, that was probably as rebellious as Hanks wanted to get uh, in this film. Right. You know, some sort of substantial rebellion. Well, you know, he's just going to go off and do his own thing. But it also put paid to that great line where um, uh, Guy finally calls his dad and says, "Look, we're going off on tour." And you hear the phone call from um, from his father's end. He says. Uh, he says, well, mother, uh, our son has gone and left us in the lurch and says to the daughter, well, you're being promoted. Does this mean you're going to start paying me? I didn't say that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> the one that really pissed me off, too, was uh, Guy's girlfriend, man. She was a real oh, tampon. Horrible. I say, I say oh, tamp- uh... tampon because she was a stuck-up cunt. You've going to take a g rated film the, and made it so. Hanging out at the dentist. She's just hanging out with the dentist office, waiting for the dentist to fill her cavity. You know, like yeah, Charlize Theron. That's yeah, the was. that was her. That was her, yes, yeah, that yeah, that yeah. Was oh shit, she she had a fat face. I mean, she didn't look like Charlize Theron. Yeah, no, like she didn't. Is it just me or did she look a little bit pudgy in that? You know, you could say that about
2: any actress. It seems like every actress had a fuller face and looked good at some point, you know?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you see Cerise Duran now, how skinny Mm -hmm. she is. I mean, shit, you know, she looks like, you know, 80 pounds wet. Mm -hmm. but, But back then, but no, she wasn't pudgy, but she just looked more, I don't know, like she looked full, like... She yeah. was well-rounded. She had a full yeah. face. It's like
2: me. Cameron Diaz in the
1: mask, you know? Like, she's right. not that by any means, but you she, can tell she had a normal face. She reminded me of the girl who played opposite Ricky Lake in Hairspray. Mm.
3: Right. But anyway,
1: yeah, but, yeah, but it was so funny every time, you know, a guy's trying to call her and she's hanging out with her dentist buddy, you know, and he's, he's, he's teaching her all about the stroke, you know? yeah (laughs) all
0: right okay um any final thoughts
1: um i I think this is a this is a pretty straightforward fun film i mean like you know i think it's weird because when i was younger i grew up on stuff like happy days right and this totally took me back to a lot of that you know and, and it's really weird because it's like you know, there was um, not to go off on a tangent, but like there was an article I just read recently where they were saying you know like when Dazed and Confused came out, they couldn't make that movie now because yeah. because because it was actually when it came out it was only about like less than fifteen years before when it was set less. Like, less than, yeah, about less than 15 years from when it came out. Well, a little over 15 years or whatever. But, I mean, if you were to do, like, the thing you do and release it today based on a band that started in, like, 1992, it it wouldn't work, you know? Mm. <laughs> it, it just, it, I mean, there was something about the 60s, something about that era, something about the innocence and the birth of rock and roll and, and just even even the whole birth of the whole press um circuit you know the press junket and the buses and the tours and all that stuff and and getting on radio and getting on tv and you know ed sullivan and all that shit i mean there's something about that the initial run
0: coming coming back to that one scene that we talked about earlier where they first hear the song on the radio that whole scene that whole the innocence is captured within that one three minute sequence that's Right, that's the whole sure. film in, in that three minute nutshell. If you sure. watch nothing, just go to YouTube and watch that clip. Right, but
1: I'm just saying, if you were to try to do that in modern times with a band starting in the early '90s, I don't... that awful
2: sort of grunge nostalgia that they're right. trying
1: to start, right. yeah. I don't know if you, I don't know if they could do it. I don't. It just doesn't have. It, it would just ring pretty false to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, of course, that's, unless they made a film with that power
0: pop movement. Matthew, if they made a film about oh. your future husband wendy matthew sweet and you know the innocence
2: <laughs> they, they would finally have made a, made my perfect movie yeah, but yeah i just like this movie just because it feels good like every time i like every time i see it i just feel better about life
0: mm-hmm. right yep yeah, that's this is um i guess but the, the film equivalent of comfort food for me i've watched this must be a dozen times and you know just i'm feeling oh I, I'm feeling a little bit down. I put this on. I know um, I, I know my sister puts on Flash Gordon or something like that when, when she feels a bit down, and this, this is my perk myself up type film, so yeah, definitely. I see.
2: Whenever I. It has I... so many great one liners, it has so many goofy little one liners and little things that stick out, like, hey, well, the wonder, whatever happened to the O'Needers, you know? <laughs>
1: right. Well, yeah, I, really I like when, um I like the bit when Steve Zahn's going on about who the hell is this guy? Blah 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 blah. And they, you know, like they, he walks in and it's his dressing room. <laughs> Direct. But nice like,
2: I love it when they're being when they're being interviewed on TV about the state fair, and he's like, "Oh, I'm not with these fellers. I've got a pig in competition. <laughs> <And> <laughs> I'm gonna win."
3: <laughs> I'm, gonna have yeah, to, I'm gonna have to
0: watch that. I'm gonna have to watch that version now. I'm gonna have to be completely <laughs> all right all right well with i think we've pretty much come to the end of that review we we all like it we all recommend it if you haven't seen it make it a priority it's a whole lot of fun right. and um well okay so well we've come to the end of uh, the silver and gold substitutes i don't think we said fuck a duck yet so uh, fuck a duck that we that just makes did oh. twice oh really oh gosh okay there you go there's there's my silver and gold moment
2: we haven't we haven't gorged ourselves on cheese and Taco Bell. No. Or talked about any wrestlers.
0: There you go. I uh, farted, though. That'll, that'll, uh, that'll cover it. I can yeah. smell
1: it from here. Jesus. <laughs> That's that thing that I do. Yeah. <laughs> keep, keep it to yourself. Yeah. You, you should be the one-hit wonder. <laughs> oh, boom. All right. Speak-
0: so um, before, we, before we go, I just want to say a big thanks to uh, Loaf and Zom. For uh, allowing us to uh, to hijack while they're off at Zom's wedding to Sly's mama, right. uh, And I hope uh,
1: I hope uh, Loaf is actually uh, sitting in the corner with his video camera during the honeymoon nuptials, you know. And uh, don't too. don't forget the Crisco, don't forget the Crisco and uh, the rubber gloves. <laughs>
0: oh ouch! You know, actually, Loaf put something up on the Facebook group saying, "Are there any thoughts from anyone out there who would like to see?" The podcast go up on YouTube, and maybe that's what he was thinking about—live footage from the from the nuptials.
1: Oh man, I can just imagine now. We're going to get you know Doctor Zom bumping uglies with the Sarlacc pit. <laughs> oh, I'd,
0: pay to, I'd pay to see that. I would. <laughs> so, so uh, before we go, Wendy, uh, plug yes. your plug your podcast endeavors.
2: Well, first of all, let me plug my band, since we're talking about band stuff. So I have uh, two albums out where I play drums with the band Demon Familiar, who is also frequently, frequently mispronounced, as it's spelled D A E M O N, like, you know, the the old English style. So you can find us on iTunes. And while you're on iTunes, you can find my comic book podcast, Double Page Spread, where uh, I talk about tea a lot. And you you can find... Only for one episode.
3: Oh uh, yeah, that's your and... story. <laughs> tea drinkers
0: and then anonymous. And then you can
2: also what?
0: A tea drinkers anonymous.
2: <laughs> and then you can also find me on the Trashy Trio talking about movies that are far less savory than uh, Help.
0: Right. <laughs> right. You know, I've been thinking about the Trashy Trio and thinking, really, you make you make Silver and Gold
1: look like a Disney podcast. Right. <laughs> After listening to a couple of episodes, I think you fuckers need some help. <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> wow! So um, recommended so- for grandmothers everywhere.
0: <laughs> uh, Sly alone's grandmother, anyway. Count. Yeah. All right. So where can
2: we find you, Morris?
0: I have a podcast called Love That Album, where I just basically talk about albums that I dig or that my rotating series of guest hosts will enjoy. And uh, Tim has been on a number of times. And, and Wendy, you're going to be deflowered. You're coming onto the show for the first time uh, very, I'm very so soon. I'm so excited. That'll, that'll be good. We're going to be doing a bit of power pop talk. Uh, we're going to be talking about Cheap Tricks in Colour, and mm-hmm. uh, Melbourne group, the Ice Cream Hands, their third effort called Sweeter Than the Radio, so I'm really, really keen to know what uh, you think of that.
2: Whenever so. I hear the name Ice Cream Hands, I imagine someone with ice cream for hands.
0: Yeah, Well, I think, actually, it's been long suggested that it's a euphemism for, uh, for wanking.
1: Hmm. It going to... Kind of reminds me of a little a little joke. I'll tell you very quickly. You know, Please. this uh, this uh, polar bear. He was uh, getting his car fixed, and uh, anyway, the mechanic system, he says, "Well, you're going to have to wait an hour." So he goes across the street to Baskin Robbins and gets himself some ice cream. So he comes back, and the polar bear says, "Well," he says, "What well, what's up with the car?" And he says, "Well, it looks like you've blown a seal." He says, "No, I was just eating ice cream." <laughs> Meet the
0: feebles. Meet the feebles. Wasn't yeah. it? Wasn't there, wasn't there a, a, <laughs> a seal blown in that? Oh yeah, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They ought to talk about that on Silver and go. Or you guys ought to talk about that on the Trashy Trio. One of one of your podcasts. Yes, are they, yes, they?
2: that should certainly be be lined up for that. I, I, I although I'd love to hear Zom talk about it. I would love to hear what low rating he would give that.
0: <laughs> let me tell you, people. I give it a two. That's because he likes blown seals, I don't know. Anyway, and and, um, Tim, any any endeavours you wish to to, uh, mention to the uh, captive listening audience?
1: I just want to uh, give props and uh, big ups to uh, my boy Andrew Levald. He's in the Philippines right now, and his documentary on Wang Wang, the search for Wang Wang, It'll be premiered in about five days, the Manila nice. Film Festival. And um, all the tickets, percentage of the tickets are actually going to be donated to the uh, the victims of the uh, Philippine disaster. Nice. So I actually, um, and even if you don't get into the Manila, you can't make it. I highly recommend all people uh, volunteer, um, donate whatever you can to the Red Cross or any form of support that's going to help the Philippines. Nice.
0: Is he? Um, is, that, um, is that documentary going to make it onto DVD, or is he currently just doing the... Absolutely.
1: Um... <clears throat> no, no, it's, it's going to be... Uh, he's going to do a world tour with it. Right, the, I, the I I've heard
0: f- him say something about going through all the film festivals.
1: <clears throat> yeah, and eventually it's going to make DVD. Right, yeah. nice. I imagine probably it'd be... Uh, yeah. That was part of the Kickstarter campaign, is that whoever donated will actually get a copy of the film. So Nice, nice. But I'm happy for Andy, so I just wanted to say big ups to you, boy. Yeah, you... Way to go, Stumps.
0: It was, it was a great interview that you did with him. I think it was a GGTMC bonus episode. He sounded like a sounded like a lovely fella. Yeah, he's a good guy.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that made me want to see it.
0: Yeah. All right. I think uh, with that... Oh, we don't say adios on this show. What do we do? We... we um... Fuck a duck. <laughs> Fuck a duck. <laughs> this is modest. It. All right. You Wendy. Wendy. See you yeah. are
1: uh, this is Tim. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Wet one.